2024 welcome we're in 2024 everything is different and (laughs) yet still the same yeah i mean i could make comments about how this year is shaping up to be a shit show shit show but uh let's not let's not do that um wait why are you saying that already i was just i was just reading stuff on election whatnots and (sighs) um we're recording this today after the iowa caucus the day not, after the iowa caucus yes not that they matter to anybody but um still it just made me feel like oh yeah that's all happening and uh, uh great i i mean <laughs> there's part of me that's like uh but then there's also part of me that's like literally who else were they going to pick yeah they're not no, gonna pick we, anybody no else. i mean there's no surprise about any of it it's no it's it's more it's just a matter of like it's 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 happening it's it's, it's for real it's happening. So. On a better note, uh, oh, wait, hold on. Who are you? I'm Scotty Milder. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Amelia Ampuero. This is the Weirdest Thing podcast, uh, and clearly we haven't done this in a minute, and we yeah. forgot <laughs> how to do it. I mean, not that we ever really knew, but... No, but we, we usually have... I mean, we were talking. We were ready yeah. to just go into the show and not say anything about anything. Yeah. Having said that about the IO caucus and that possibly somewhat depressing news, should we talk about something that is somehow less depressing very briefly and talk about the Iron Claw, which we yes. just saw? Yeah. Well, so first off, I, I want a couple things because um, it is we're getting into award season for all the movies. Yes. I uh, am sort of slowly trying to catch up on some of the things. Yes. Um, I still need to watch the Barbie movie, so I'm going to make the pledge right here and right now that before okay. we record our next episode, I'm going to watch Barbie, and I'll give my like brief thoughts on it. Okay. Back. I, before we get into Iron Claw, I, want, I know we talked about it a little bit, but I want to hear a little bit from you about uh, what your thoughts on Oppenheimer. Oh, yeah. I finally watched Oppenheimer. I did not scramble to see it in the theaters because mm-hmm. I did not feel the need to see that movie in the theater i know Mm -hmm. it was like filmed for imax and all of that stuff yeah i absolutely appreciate that but i'm about to be 45 like i don't need to (laughs) sit in a movie theater for over three hours it's just a Uh, lot so i haven't watched colors of the fire moon yet for that very reason yeah i just i i couldn't even really do it when i was in my 20s and now Mm -hmm. i'm just like oh my i can't yeah so i earlier i was about to say earlier Sorry, I just looked at my computer and my computer says that it's Sunday, December 17th. <laughs> no wonder it's having problems. Okay, yeah. so I watched uh, I watched it uh, maybe about a week ago, I guess. Yeah, it was before we saw the Iron Claw. Yeah, it was before we saw the Iron Claw. And I think uh, we talked about this a little bit. I know that it's very easy to sort of say, oh, Oppenheimer is a movie about war and men. I mm-hmm. think... That I think the movie is very well done. I think that Christopher Nolan 
I think that it would have been super easy to make just a straightforward biopic about Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. And I think that like I, I think that, that would have been boring. I think that he mm-hmm. figured out a way to tell that story in a way that was really compelling. And what I like about Oppenheimer, which is the same thing that I like about this play called Copenhagen, which is written by Michael Frayne, mm-hmm. is that it really like at the center of it, I felt was this question about genius and brilliance and creativity Mm -hmm. and what responsibility we as human beings have to be able to imagine something, right? So you're thinking about Mm -hmm. like the theoretical science of like nuclear (laughs) weapons. And you can think about that in the sort of abstract, like, oh, I wonder if that would be possible, but what are the what are the practical human moral ethical Mm -hmm. implications of being like, well, now that we've thought about it, now we should create it. And I think, I think, yeah, I think it's a I think it's a really good movie. And I don't think that it makes I think that it's a pretty balanced look at Oppenheimer. I don't think that it celebrates him. I don't think that it paints him in a good light. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't think it like idolizes him. And I don't think that it like necessarily demonizes him. I think it really humanizes him. It's like, this is a guy who was brilliant and he had an incredible mind and he was also a a mess. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, I really liked Oppenheimer and obviously, I mean, we've talked about these things before because like talked about it a bit when I did my Demon Core episode way back Mm -hmm. when, talked about it recent-ish when I talked about the Tsar Bomb. Um, yeah, talked about Edward Teller, you know, a lot of these questions, you know, being from Los Alamos, obviously, it's like subjects kind of near and dear to to me in a lot of ways. And like, I will say, like, I was not interested in the in the polemical either way, either direction. I didn't want the like, rah, 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 go Oppenheimer, go America movie. And I didn't want the like, he was an evil sociopath who destroyed the world movie either. Like, yeah. I think it was very fair-minded towards him. I think it was fair-minded towards the issue of nuclear weapons, atomic weapons in general. I even thought it was fair-minded towards uh, Edward Teller, which, like, I talked about. Like, he's a villain in Los Alamos. Yeah. (laughs) He's sort of seen as, like, the, the devil who brought Oppenheimer down you know up there yeah. so like i thought the movie it was played by benny safty and i thought he was he's might be my favorite performance in the movie all is like the weirdest performance in the movie it's definitely a weird performance but it's also i met teller when he was a very old man and he was a very yeah. weird person and i felt like he kind of caught that <laughs> about here's it. the thing is that i think all of those people were like right. I don't think that you can be – I think it's the same when you get into anybody who spends too much time thinking about any one thing. Mm-hmm. Like I have a friend who is deeply invested and committed into like the art of theater and acting and, you know, spends a lot of time thinking about it and studying it. And, you know, he's a weird dude too. Know, like exactly you can't – yeah, about. you can't mm-hmm. – yes. I don't think that you can be – obsessed with something, which is what all of these people are and were. I don't think that you can be obsessed with something and be a quote unquote normal human being. And when you have that kind of brain, I mean, because I grew up around scientists and, yeah. and specifically this kind of scientist. You mm-hmm. know? And like they're 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 odd. <laughs> like sorry Los Alamos people if you're listening, but you're a bunch of fucking weirdos. Like yeah. And I've always said, you know, I worked at the lab for a while as a technical editor. 
And I would have to edit documents that were prepared by scientists, you know, physicists. And I would also have to edit documents that were prepared by engineers. And the ones that were prepared by engineers were like super easy because it's like, okay, you might have forgot a comma or something. But they were very clean, very just like precise, grammatically correct, you know. Yeah. And then uh, the stuff written by the physicist was always a fucking mess because the brains are going like 800 directions at once. Yeah. And it's just, and I think the movie really caught that very well. And I I think you can only be called a genius so many times before it starts to scramble your brain a little bit. Yeah. If if, if I'm being really and truly honest, and again, this is across disciplines. Mm -hmm. People are weird. Theater people are weird. Actors are weird. Scientists are weird. Mm -hmm. Like I said, anytime you get that obsessed with something, you turn into a weirdo because you're sort of single-minded. I know that there's been a lot of talk from people, you know, I heard a lot that it was like, oh, it's just like a sausage fest. And we were talking about this on the way to the movie. Mm -hmm. I understand that. But it's also like that whole thing was a sausage fest. Like there were not a lot of women (laughs) in there. Having said that, I think for the size of the roles that they had, I think Florence Pugh and Emily Blunt. Emily Blunt. Yeah. I, I really think I'm so I I don't think she's getting any attention for it. And I no. think it's some of Emily Blunt's best work. She yeah. is so bitter and brittle in that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh really unlike anything else that we've seen her do. Right. And it does. Uh, it does make me a little sad that I don't think that she's really getting any recognition for it. Yeah, I, I do think it's excellent work. I think it's just hard in a movie like that because, like we talked about, it's a movie where, like, you know, Gary Oldman will show up for two minutes and, like, destroy a scene, you know, because yeah. Gary Oldman. So it's like how, you know, and the fact of the matter is that I agree with the, I mean, I'll qualify it. Like, I agree with the criticism that the Florence P. roles and the Emily Blunt role in that movie were a little underwritten. I also agree. I'll qualify it by saying, like, I don't know how, like, when it's the movie about Oppenheimer and and so there's it's such a big, sprawling story. It's not their movie, you know? So. Yeah. But I know enough about Kitty Oppenheimer, and I'm forgetting the name of the woman that Florence Pugh plays, but they're, like, very interesting. They were very interesting people in their own right. Right. And so it's like, for me, just like knowing some of the history, I was like, I would have liked more about them. There's the part of me that like watches a movie like Oppenheimer. I was like, man, could you imagine the Christopher Nolan directed and produced like 10 hour, you know, HBO limited series? But that's not what we got. I think that's the thing is that what do you cut to make more room for them? Right. Exactly. So there's really not like, I feel like as actors, they did, like, the roles are sort of necessarily somewhat underwritten, but they did Mm -hmm. a lot with those roles. They did a lot with them. And I also think that this is something that I think can, I don't want to say that because that sounds kind of rude, but I think that people can forget sometimes that when you are making, like, with with the case of this particular movie, Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. I think that Florence Pugh's character and Kitty Oppenheimer took up just as much space in the movie as they took up in Oppenheimer's life. That's probably that's probably true. Like that's that's a good way to think about it. And like, and it is. I mean, it's his story, and it's it's got to be his story. And like, yeah, you know. And the fact of the matter is, Kitty Oppenheimer gets probably about as much screen time as Edward Teller does. Probably. I mean, 
um you know so it's like there's a lot of people that were like part of that story it's a big sprawling ensemble story that like yeah you know what can you do i think you do? as far as your whole thing about like you didn't see it in theaters and it's a whole thing with christopher nolan you know he's always pushing like he wants everyone to go see his movie and his movies in theaters you know like he said he shoots everything for imax and like look if it's a movie like interstellar i think you do lose something if you don't see it in the theater like Mm -hmm. just in terms of like the visual spectacle of it or even a movie that i don't love like um i'm not a big fan of inception but i'm glad i saw it in the theater if i was gonna see it of his movies two of the two of his movies i think of where i'm like "Eh, these are not movies you really have to see in the theater i would go all the way back to memento Mm-hmm. and then i would say oppenheimer like there's such character pieces that like yeah there's some I, visually stunning stuff in the film but it's not i don't think it needs that like massive imax screen you know yeah i would say the only part that maybe loses you might lose a little bit of something is the actual trinity test sequence but like even then okay you know it's like 30 seconds of a three plus hour movie right so yeah, I don't think if you haven't seen Oppenheimer yet and you're and you're like, well, I'm not sure you want to watch it because you missed it in the theaters, I would say don't let that stop you. Yeah, don't let that. But yeah, let's talk a little bit about the Iron Clock because I've actually not stopped thinking about it since we watched it. It's it was really, really great. Um, mm-hmm. so for anybody who doesn't know, Iron Claw is a movie based on the life of the Von Eric family, mm-hmm. uh, a wrestling family, and just like a fucking tragic story mm-hmm. if you've been like oh i watch that movie plan something fun for yourself afterwards right uh it, it it is it is an excellent movie i think it's terribly well made but ooh, it is the story if you know anything about them about that family you already know what's coming in it but if you don't i would actually say honestly if you don't know anything about that family i would say look into them first before going to go see the movie yeah and i'm gonna say like i don't want to like dive too into spoilers for this movie but with the caveat of what you just said that i actually think it's better this is one of those movies that's actually better to kind of know where the movie's going than to yeah mind um if you don't want to know anything about the movie i would say fast forward maybe I don't know, five minutes or something, two to five minutes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm not going to really spoil anything, but I do want to say like, I've been thinking about it. And so you came on my other podcast at the end of last year and we talked about um, Mike Flanagan and and specifically talked about uh, the new Follow the House of Usher series. Yeah. On Netflix. And I've been kind of thinking of the Iron Claw in relation to that in terms of just this like, like that's, that's the horror black comedy version of almost the same story of just this family that just, you see the rise and then you see the fall. I think, (laughs) yeah. And I think that, you know, the clear difference is that Follow the House of Usher is a bunch of like, you know, fucking (laughs) rich kid assholes from a family that made their money in like dubious ways and all that stuff and it's 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 very like get your just desserts kind of yeah it's i mean there's definitely some like revenge fantasy come up it's type of stuff in in house of usher whereas iron claw this is the like genuine human tragedy of like yeah i mean and it it borders on like shakespearean tragedy Mm -hmm. levels like 
stuff continues to happen in the movie and there was there there is a point where you're like it's it's that sense of just one thing after another after right and there is a point when you're like it's not possible for anything else bad to happen to this family and then something else will happen well and that's why uh if you know anything about the like the if there's any criticism of the movie that i've seen it's that it's a little fast and loose with some of the historical accuracy yeah and there's one big omission in the film yes and we but don't need i think to go that deeply into it but it's because of that Reason. Yeah, I think that omission was made because had they included it, I think it's I think if I was pitching the movie to you and it was fictional, that's when somebody would go, that's too much and you need to edit that. Right, like you exactly. need to take that out. It's it now it's bordering on on ridiculous. And that's actually what I read in or I read I think a quote. And that's what the director Sean Durkin even said about it. Is it was just like it was one thing too many. It's like the movie yeah. couldn't sustain it. I will so just I, I mean, I just mentioned him, Sean Darkin. He's, uh, if you're an indie movie fan, you probably know him from probably around 2010, 2011. He did a movie called Martha, the Marcy, May, Marlene, which is. Sorry, what is it called? Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. Okay. Um, which is a really great, really disturbing movie about a cult, kind of a Manson family cult. Uh, starring Elizabeth Olsen. It was kind of Elizabeth Olsen's sort of breakout film. And then he did a British, like, six-part... It's interesting because he's an American filmmaker, but he did a British, like, six-part, or multi-part, I don't remember how many parts it was, a miniseries called South Cliff that's about a mass shooting. Okay. They did one other movie that I haven't seen, and then he did uh, The Iron Claw. And he's just... He's one of those filmmakers who's not showy. Like, he's not a... You know, you go to, like, a movie like a Christopher Nolan film. Or, like, I have not seen Barbie yet, but I know it's, like, visually this kind of sumptuous, amazing sort of... Yeah. And, like, Sean Durkin's movies are are sort of very small and very human. Yeah. Uh, Iron Claw has a sort of Friday Night Lights feel to it. And it makes sense both based in Texas, both based around, like, athletics and all those things and and sports. But it's that kind of... it's, It's... it is somewhat of a quiet movie. Well, that's interesting because I was even thinking about like like the very beginning of the film, the opening shot is this black and white slow motion shot in a wrestling ring. Yeah. Of um, Fritz von Erich, the father, uh, during a wrestling match. And I was like, oh, this is like going to be like, this is going to be playing with like the visual imagery of like Raging Bull. Mm. And then it was like that moment. And then it moved on from that. And then it's mm-hmm. like all the wrestling scenes after that are very like handheld, very kind of, I don't even want to say sloppy, but like almost, but it's because it's really trying to put you in the middle of it, you know? Yeah. So it's like, yeah. there's almost a sense of like lack of choreography to the camera work that I think is intentional. Yeah. I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. And then the performances, uh, it's the best performance I've seen from Zach Efron. Yeah. Best performance from Zach Efron. Jeremy Allen White is of course fantastic mm. as always. And the guy who plays, Dave, is that the brother's yeah, name? Dave. Uh, I didn't know he's, I think he's a Brit. Mm-hmm. Everybody's fantastic. Always lovely to see Maura Tierney in yeah. stuff. She's, she's plays the mom in this. The dad is the guy from Mindhunter, the older FBI agent from Mindhunter. Yeah, that's who he is. Yeah. Okay. And <laughs> then Zac Efron's wife is. Uh, Lily James, I believe is her name. She was, she played Pamela Anderson in the mm-hmm. Pam and Tommy series also... that just came out. She's also, also in the second Mamma Mia movie. Oh, I knew the Pamela Anderson thing. I didn't know that. Um, yep. She plays a young Meryl Streep in that movie. Oh, interesting. Oh, that's, 
I could see it. I could see it. Yeah. I will say the guy who plays David is in a show that's on. I'm watching it on Hulu, but I think it's an FX show. It's called, uh, I think it's like A Murder at the End of the World. Uh huh. Um, and it's uh, by uh, what? How I'm forgetting her, Britt Marling, who did the OA on Netflix. Okay. And it's like a really good style. I'm like only about four or five episodes in, but it's like a really good stylish murder mystery, and he's very good at it. So yeah, he was great in the movie. He's one of those actors I want to kind of keep my eye on. Yeah, two, two, two big thumbs up <laughs> for mm-hmm. Iron Claw. <laughs> we need a better rating system. We give it five. popcorn kernels in fact because i think we could actually get sued by saying two big thumbs up so we didn't actually say that. right you didn't hear that uh instead it's uh yeah it's the old timey like classic popcorn containers the red and white striped ones (laughs) yeah uh it's two big full ones of that one for each of us okay fantastic Yeah, and I'm sure as we get into as we get deeper into like award season, we'll probably be talking about yeah. one of these movies. Probably won't be talking about the movie Poor Things because I know you I are refusing to watch it. it, and I'm not particularly interested. I'm sorry, so we'll probably yeah. skip over I, that. I, one, I did but. watch. I did watch Saltburn. <laughs> I want to see. Okay, mm-hmm. let's table that because that's one mm-hmm. I need to catch up with, and I've heard a lot probably about it. Yeah, we'll have to have a conversation yeah. about that. <laughs> um, okay, so sure. I'm. We, we said I'm going first. Is that correct? Okay, you fantastic. So I'm going to start. It's not really a cold open, but I'm going to read you a quote from an article from Cracked.com. Uh, it is about a fast food restaurant, and Scotty, I want to see if you can guess what fast food restaurant this quote is talking okay. about. Okay. Quote, they know the same thing we all do. Inside of each of us is an uncivilized goblin fighting for control and craving the type of beef that's spoken in the form of a question. Other brands fight to be the food you set out for a dinner party while this is the meal you eat alone over the sink. The world needs both. What fast food restaurant do you think that might be? you talking about is it wendy's no i was just because it wasn't wendy's that did, i was just thinking beef in the form <laughs> of a question didn't wendy's do the where's the beef at? Uh, they might have but no it is not not, not wendy's. wendy's do you want to take another guess okay so now it's like sadly eating a hamburger over the sink i mean i would say mcdonald's but that seems too obvious um What's well, like a sad hamburger? I think Burger King's kind okay. of Okay. Well, it's interesting that you're saying that because I said beef, but I did not say hamburger. The restaurant this quote is talking about is Taco Bell. Mm. So today, no, <laughs> today yeah, I'm going to tell sense. you about how Taco Bell stole from a cornerstone of the Inland Empire, but also introduced most Americans to Mexican food. So sources mm. for this, yeah. I had so many sources for this that I basically had to just whittle them down to anything that I actually got a decent amount of information from. So sources are Wikipedia, uh, The Best Show in the Universe, The Food That Built America, Uh, another Netflix show Mm -hmm. called, uh, sorry, Food That Built America is not a Netflix show. It's on Hulu. It's a History Channel show. But the Netflix show Mm -hmm. Ugly Delicious, WeAreMeToo.com, Cracked.com, Smithsonian Magazine, PBS, NPR, Eater LA, Mel Magazine, the LA Times, the BBC, and MeetlaCafeSB.com. Yes, That's it was a lot. a lot. And like I said, I cut down anything that didn't give me like a chunk of info because it would have it would have been endless. Okay, so 
<laughs> to start this off, let's talk a little bit about the origin of the taco. There are a lot mm, of theories okay. about not only the origin of the dish itself, but of the word taco. So we're going to start with the word. That's a lie. Hold on. So, okay. it is. There's a camp that believes that tacos are pre-Columbian, pre-Hispanic. They believe that the Aztecs were eating tacos mm. way before the Spanish landed in Mexico. There is a Nahuatl word. It's Tlaco, which means half or middle. And they believe that taco comes from this Nahuatl word, tlaco. The word taco shows up in the Spanish language and it is used throughout all Spanish speaking countries to mean many things. It might mean a wedge, a wad, a plug, a billiard cue, a blowpipe, a ramrod, a short, stocky person. Mm. In my family, I don't know if this is like mm. a Bolivianism or if this just happens to be my family, but we use the word taco <laughs> to mean high heels. Mm. Yeah. Um, it is believed by some that the word for the food is a play on what Mexican miners were calling the chargers that they made for ore extraction. They would take a paper, put gunpowder in it, roll it up, and stick it into the drill hole for the explosions, and they called those Oh, tacos. interesting. I, li I like that. <laughs> the word <laughs> is in print by 1836 in a cookbook that describes rolling a pork loin as you would a taco de tortilla. But like early 1800s is about the earliest that we see the food being referred to by that word. Okay. So there is anthropological evidence of indigenous Mexicans eating fish tacos in the lake region of the Valley of Mexico, again, long before the Spanish arrived. Mm. And there are, there are also direct ties that you can make between a Mexican taco and like Lebanese shawarma or kebabs. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. To this day, tacos al pastor or uh, and sorry, uh, another dish called tacos arabes are directly linked to the Lebanese people who immigrated to Mexico in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Mexican cuisine is full of global influences. Like mm -hmm. Mexican cerveza comes from the German, Czech, and Polish immigrants who were coming in. Uh, you have the Lebanese people who came in and influenced the food. There were uh, people from Turkey and Armenia who were coming in. You've got the Sephardic Jews who came into Mexico during the Inquisition from Spain. Like mm -hmm. the anthropology of Mexican cuisine is really fascinating. <laughs> a redditor in the subreddit oh this is well the, this is one of the ones that it's like <laughs> one of my many sources <laughs> but there's a subreddit called ask food historians i had shown this i told scotty about this subreddit a while ago and i was like oh i'm 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 in heaven <laughs> i remember yeah. yeah so a redditor in the subreddit ask food historians says this quote the tricky thing about defining the taco is that they vary by region what may be considered a taco by today's standard in the yucatan might not be a cons might not be considered a taco in the state of mexico so there's that as well mm -hmm. Let's talk about the food itself. As we understand it today, the taco is a traditional Mexican food. It's usually a street food consisting of small hand-sized corn or flour tortillas 
filled with beef, pork, chicken, seafood, mm. beans, vegetables, cheese, kind of whatever. The tortilla is folded around the filling and eaten by hand. Uh, another interesting tidbit is that it seems like corn versus flour tortillas might actually be a regional preference in Mexico, with those in southern mm. Mexico preferring corn tortillas based on the recipes of the indigenous people, and those in northern Mexico preferring flour tortillas, where one, the food was introduced by the Spanish, and two, Two, wheat grew better than corn. There are a lot of people who believe that flour tortillas actually originated in Spain during the Muslim conquest of Spain. Okay. History of the tortilla, also very, very cool, even before we get to like what it gets filled with. Um, mm. <laughs> tacos <laughs> are most commonly eaten with soft tortillas, whether they are corn or flour, mm -hmm. but there's a big asterisk by that, which we'll get to in just a bit. Okay, so let's zoom out of Mexico and let's get into California. Clearly, during the early part of the 1900s, there was a huge flux, uh, a huge influx of I just got too excited and pulled my own headphone out. Okay. <laughs> a huge influx of Mexican people into California. LA's Mexican population grew from just under 34,000 to nearly 100,000 between 1920 and 1930. So you got a lot of Mexican people mm -hmm. in the state of California. Yeah. Mexican restaurants and eateries start opening their doors during the first half of the 20th century. But again, most of their clientele are Mexicans. Right. There is a restaurant named El Cholo. It opened its doors in 1923. Cielito Lindo Food Stand opens in 1934 in LA. And they apparently sell these like famous taquitos with an avocado sauce. 1937, Mitla Cafe opens its doors, led by a woman named Lucia Rodriguez, and they begin serving the people of San Bernardino cheesy, awesome Mexican comfort food. By the way, yeah. all three of those restaurants are still open today. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, El Cholo is California's oldest, longest running longest continually running Mexican food restaurant. The oldest continually running Mexican food restaurant in the country is a place called El Charo, which is in Tucson, Arizona. And not only has it been mm. continuously running since 1922, it has also been run by the same family the entire time. Huh. I wonder what the oldest running one in New Mexico is. I did not look that up. Well, yeah. well, I mean, I wouldn't have expected you to. No, I'm curious no, I'm too. Curious. Okay. So yeah. we got a lot of Mexican people coming into, back into California in the mm. early part of the 1900s. And as we move through, you know, the first half of the century, we've got a country that has been, you know, like battered by the Great Depression. Right. World War II is looming. Like we're about to get into World War II. And San Bernardino itself is a heavily segregated town along Route 66. Like I mentioned very briefly before, San Bernardino is part of the Inland Empire. Scotty, do you, mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about what the Inland Empire is? Yeah, it's like hell on earth, kind of. But like, I don't think it used to be. I think it's kind of become that. <laughs> and there's definitely debates on about where the borders are. But if you go east of LA mm -hmm. and then west of Palm Springs... Mm -hmm. that area is generally considered the Inland Empire, but a lot of people will say, well, actually, it doesn't go all the way to Palm Springs. It's sort of, and, and a lot of people, like people in Pasadena get real salty about they don't want to be considered part of the Inland Empire. Right. So they'll say it's actually east of Pasadena and then like 
sort of through San Bernardino. Yeah. Um, is the Inland Empire. And it's basically, and it's like a lot of smallish towns and cities that have just been absorbed by sprawl yeah so it's like i think it's like one of the it's like the fifth or sixth largest like if you don't consider it part of la it's like one of the largest um urban populations in the country but it has no like urban core urban center it's just like it's suburbia it's suburb it's like strip malls and stuff forever Mm -hmm. i always say it's like a for anyone who's local like imagine the west side of albuquerque but forever but forever. Like, <laughs> that's the Inland Empire. And it's a bummer because like San Bernardino is like actually kind of a cool town. Yeah. That I think has just been sort of absorbed by nonsense, you know? And yeah. it's just like impossible to get around out there. And everything looks yeah. the same. And yeah. Yeah. This area is going to become huge mm. for one specific industry. And I'll get back to that in okay. just a second. Okay. So... Mitla Cafe, and just for anybody who might be like, what? It's M-I-T-L-A, Mitla. It becomes a community meeting spot during this rough period in American history. This next quote is from the Eater LA article. Quote, people came in early and often, sidling into one of the hand-sewn brown leather coffee counter seats and chatting with neighbors over a cup of coffee before moving on to start the day. Families arrived on weekends, anchored by the friendly atmosphere and kid-friendly menu. In reading about this and seeing about all this stuff, it really makes me think of the Barella's Coffee House here in Albuquerque. Mm, yeah. Like okay. it is a place that has been around. Right. Uh, right. For, oh, man, I haven't been to Barella's in a long time. Yeah. Barella's, I think, is pretty old. It's I don't know there. how old. I but think it's, it's pretty one of the old. oldest in Albuquerque. I don't remember from when, but. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so one of the people who frequented Meet Le Cafe is a San Bernardino local by the name of Glenn Bell. Mm. We'll come back to him in a bit. Okay. okay so I'm going to talk to you a little bit about food and fast food in the U.S. Mm. The predecessor to fast food, as we know it today, was the Automat, and that's those little cafeterias that had prepared foods behind small glass windows, coin-operated slots. You'd put your money in and a little – like a meal would come out. Okay. These were generally in cities. It was a place for like, you know, where a little secretary would like go grab a little sandwich or something. Um, Very Mad Men. Mm-hmm. General consensus is that the first actual fast food outlet was White Castle, which opened in Wichita, Kansas in 1916. Really? White Castle? That's interesting. White Castle, yeah. White Castle standardized food production and created the first fast food supply chain to provide ingredients and supplies to their multi state hamburger restaurant chain. Mm, okay. Now, White Castle at this time was not a franchise, they were a chain. Right. So just want to make yeah. that distinction there. With the difference being a franchise is like a lot of different owners and the chain is like one owner with a lot of locations. Right? With a lot of locations. Yeah. A franchisee is basically a person who is independent from the people who started the business mm-hmm. and they basically buy a restaurant in a box. Yeah. It's like they have sort of a licensing agreement. Kind of. Yeah. And they get the branding, they get the supplies, right. they do all that right. stuff and they get like the name recognition of something that's like known, mm-hmm. um, but the owners have nothing to do with each other. Right. 
So then in 1940, you get Richard and Maurice McDonald, also known as Dick and Mac McDonald, Mm -hmm. and they open a barbecue stand in San Bernardino. Mm -hmm. They're selling barbecue. And after a while, they realize that the majority of their profits are not coming from the barbecue, but from the burgers that they're selling. Mm. So they're like, okay, let's commit to burgers. And they create this speedy service system, which is an extraordinarily efficient means of production that is influenced by Henry Ford's production line. Yeah. I was going to say it's like assembly line. basically. It's an assembly line. Yeah. Yeah. But they saw what Henry Ford was doing with cars with cars. And they were like, well, we can do that with burgers. Mm -hmm. An interesting thing about Dick and Mac McDonald is they were not interested in being like rich. They wanted to be successful. They wanted to do their thing, but they were not interested in being like crazy rich. Mm -hmm. They sold the speedy service system to anybody who wanted to buy it for $950 and they gave free tours to anybody who asked. So they weren't worried about like competition. No, okay, not at all. They like, I'm going to use this in quotes, but it's like a benevolent capitalism type of thing (laughs) where they were like, we want to make money off of this and we want to survive off of this and like maybe have a little bit extra, but Mm. like, we're not looking to like dominate, kill the competition, all that stuff. Squeeze out everybody. Right. Ray Kroc. (laughs) who was a milkshake machine salesman, Mm -hmm. came in in 1954, and he's the one who was like a bloodthirsty capitalist. He was like, let's go. Let's franchise. Let's get this. Let's get a McDonald's on every corner. And the McDonald brothers were like, we really don't want to do that. Like, Mm -hmm. we don't care. We like what we have here. We like what we're doing. We don't want to do that. And Ray Kroc just kind of kept at him. And they finally went to Ray Kroc and they said, again, this is in, uh, I think the the like late 50s, maybe early 60s. Mm-hmm. McDonald Brothers went to Ray Kroc and they were like, we will give you McDonald's for $2.7 million. Mm. And Ray Kroc was like, there's no way I can get that. And they were like, figure it out if you want it. And basically mm-hmm. the reason it was 2.7 is because they wanted each brother to get a million. And the 0.7 was for Uncle Sam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess later, I think it was Dick who was like, maybe we made a mistake in doing that. Like, maybe we should have held on to it. Well, and there's a whole, I mean, I don't know if you go into this, but there's a whole like, because like, there's like one McDonald's left that was owned by them that still exists. And it's like, not part of the like McDonald's. That was the thing is they said, we want our, we want the original restaurant Mm -hmm. and 2.7 million and you can have the rest. And Ray Kroc was like, okay. Yeah, so like I think that McDonald's is still there. Like I think it, it's still. It might be, uh, which yeah. again would be worth a road trip. Yeah, McDonald's and all of that whole other episode. Yeah. So that's all I'm going <laughs> to say about the McDonald's brothers yeah, right now. Further, right, but like I said, they would give these tours to anybody who asked, and one of the people who came in to see how the speedy service system worked was a young fast food entrepreneur named Glenn Bell. Mm-hmm. By the way, just a quick aside, I've, you know, people always talk about like, what's the regional cuisine of like, you know, it's like New Mexico, we have like our New Mexican food or like Cincinnati has like Cincinnati chili or Kansas mm-hmm. City has Kansas City barbecue. And I've always been like, what is like the defining food of like Southern California? And I've always been like, well, it's fast food because it's, it's like they all came out of there. It seems like. No, like they all did. 
Yeah, um, apparently it except is, for Whitechapel, but like, or White Castle, but <laughs> Whitechapel is where Jack the Ripper happened. <laughs> um, uh, um, no, Southern California, what really what like it is the birthplace of fast food. Mm. Now, I will say the other place that had a lot to do with fast food is the area of Kentucky and Ohio. Yeah, so around Cincinnati, kind of. You had a lot of stuff coming out of there. Arby's came out of there. Kentucky oh. Chicken came out of there. Like uh, Wendy's, I think, came out of there. You had a lot of stuff that was coming out of that place as well, um, which is just weird. Yeah. So California in the 1950s is seeing, kind of like going along with what you said, is seeing what is thought of as a fast food gold rush. Mm-hmm. So you've got McDonald's leading the way. Right. Um This speedy service system that the McDonald brothers created meant that a person was going from order to eating a hot, fresh burger in two minutes. To put this into perspective, just 10 years earlier, Colonel Harlan Sanders was just figuring out how to use a pressure fryer to make Mm. his famous fried chicken so that orders of fried chicken wouldn't take 30 to 45 minutes. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So really McDonald's is like rev the McDonald's brothers are revolutionizing mm. food. Additionally, you can buy a burger for 15 cents at McDonald's, which is yeah. just like insane to me. So you've got McDonald's doing its thing. In and out burgers has five locations in California. Jack in the Box is taking over San Diego, and a place called Fat Burger is booming in Los Angeles. I didn't know In and Out went back that. I mean, yeah. The general consensus with fast food is that burgers are the food for fast food. Right. So burger joints are popping up left and right, actually all over the country. Everybody's doing like their own little small independent fast food places. Another thing we need to talk about is that at this time, American taste buds are pretty bland. Yeah. If you look at what most people are eating in the 1950s, it's dishes like meatloaf, roast chicken, uh, tuna casserole, beef stroganoff, chicken pot pie. They're like rich and hearty dishes, but not (laughs) – there's the joke about (laughs) – not packed with flavor. And like there's the joke about white people uh, think that seasoning (laughs) is salt and pepper and like (laughs) people get like really like "Mm," about that. When you look at like really – traditional American cuisine outside of things like soul food Mm -hmm. or Cajun food, it's bland. It's Yeah. I mean, apparently my grandfather, when he married my grandmother for years, was like just wanted her to cook his like oaky, like you said, meatloaf stuff. Yeah. Finally, she convinced him, like, let me try some of because she's, you know, Latina from Gallup. So like she had had some recipes in her back pocket. Yeah. She eventually kind of converted him and he was like a big fan of the Mexican cuisine. But yeah. like, I think it took a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At this time, w- the truth of it is, is that Americans, most Americans have not tasted something like a taco and mm-hmm. nor do they have an interest in trying them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're going to pause there in terms of like food history and we're going to come back to Meatla Cafe. So mm-hmm. like I said before, Meatla's was started by a woman named Lucia and her first husband, Vincente Montano. They mm-hmm. immigrated to the U.S. from Jalisco, Mexico. Okay. Lucia, who ran the kitchen, started the restaurant during the Great Depression, like the Depression. 
because she was like, I want to ensure that I can feed my family. And beyond that, I also want to know that I can feed my community. Yeah. Vincente passed away shortly after the restaurant was opened and Lucia remarried, you know, yeah, she remarried. And uh, the second time she married a man named Salvador Rodriguez. So in addition to dishes like chile rellenos and enchiladas, she also served what she called tacos dorados, which translates mm -hmm. to golden tacos. Lucia's family in Mexico would eat these crispy fried tacos mostly during Lent, but they were filled with mashed potatoes, mm. which just sounds like, I don't know why I'm like, that sounds so good. <laughs> and then I think about when we were doing Sonder and there was the play about tacos and they made like potato and cheese tacos. Mm -hmm. And I was like, these are so good. Like it's mm -hmm. so stupid that potatoes and cheese in a tortilla can be this good. Yeah. I was going to say like mashed potatoes sounds weird until you think about like, like the breakfast burritos that come with like, you know, just potatoes those in them and stuff it's like no, yeah it, makes, it actually makes sense yeah so she had grown up eating them like i said filled with mashed potatoes but when she comes to the u.s she's like well what do i actually have available to me and what's available to her is ground beef cheddar cheese iceberg lettuce and tomatoes i will stop here and say that there are a lot of opinions about crispy tacos mm -hmm. there are absolutely people hipsters who look down their noses at hard shell tacos, <laughs> but they are a legit Mexican food. Mm -hmm. Gustavo Arellano, he's the author of Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. Um, he says, quote, tacos dorados is a hard shelled pocket. That's what it boils down to. So no one invented the hard shell taco. There's no one creator. Yeah. I know people want to find the originator, but it's really a confluence of all of these different people capitalizing on what was already there. Actually, the first tacos in the U.S., they were all hard shell tacos. That was just the style of eating tacos that people brought up with them from Mexico. In mm -hmm. fact, the earliest known recipe for a taco in US in English is a hard shell taco and it was in the LA Times. That taco recipe <laughs> came out in the LA Times around 1912. Now, there is a whole Okay, when we talk about these like taco dorados, what it is is a taco is made, right? So you've got a soft corn tortilla, you fill it with whatever you're going to fill it with, and then you take that whole thing and fry it until so the like tortilla you're frying turns. like the ground beef and like everything all together. Yeah, everything gets fried together. The hard shells that are shaped like little U's that is a whole other thing. There are patents that were filed in Mexico. There were patents that were filed in the U.S. There were different food distribution companies that were huh. selling hard taco shells for a long time. Like, it's a whole other thing. So Gustavo is really not kidding when he's like, there is no one creator for this. Like, they were making them in Mexico as the tacos dorados, and then the hard shells were being done all over the place. Yeah. Okay. So Lucia opens Meet La Cafe to feed her family and her community. And from the get-go, the place serves as not just an eatery, but as like a de facto community space. Mm -hmm. The There are a lot of people quoted in a, like almost every article I read about this that were like, Meatla was not a restaurant. It felt like an extension of a busy home. It felt like being in somebody's living room. It felt like being in somebody's kitchen. I mean, that sounds like so many restaurants around here where it's like, 
clearly it was someone's family home that has just like grown into being a restaurant. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Or like the entire family works there. Um, Padilla's restaurant really feels that way to me, mm-hmm. especially because like <laughs> we love Padilla's. We're a Padilla's family. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you have some other Mexican restaurant that you love in Albuquerque, good for you. They're all great. But Padilla's is, yeah, Padilla's is our restaurant. And we crack up because they're open, like, I think they might be closed on, like, Sundays. Mm. But they're open, I think, from, like, 4 to 7. (laughs) They don't take credit cards. They don't give a fuck. And they're like, Mm. if you do not want to deal with this literally go anywhere else (laughs) like and i have never been there when i have not had to wait now it moves quick because they are moving it is not the place where you go to have like a leisurely meal Mm -hmm. they're moving you but the food is good i've never i've never i don't think i've ever eaten there Oh, it's so good. It's on Girard. It's so good. Meatla Cafe started to see the likes of local businessmen and politicians who would go, they would go on to start the Mexican Chamber of Commerce in San Bernardino in order to provide support and access for Mexican-owned businesses. Labor leader and civil rights activist Cesar Chavez was a regular at Meatla, and he mm. would go like as often as he was in the area. Also from Eater LA, quote, Mexican-American baseball teams finished their games with a game at Meatla. Church leaders led their congregation to the dining room on Sunday afternoons. Parades, demonstrations, and acts of civil disobedience stemming from the city's growing discomfort with its own outright racism all started at Mitla and would go on to change the landscape of the Inland Empire. Hmm. Mitla actually ended up being the spot where community organizers met to fight the segregation of San Bernardino pools by segregationist Mayor William Seccom. The case, Lopez versus Seccom, would provide the precedent for the landmark case Brown versus Board of Education. Interesting. Yeah. Mike Montano, who is Lucia's grandson and current co-owner of Meatla, says, quote, this restaurant was not just a place to serve food, but it was a place for people to meet, to talk, to share ideas and to move our community forward. So let's talk about this guy I've mentioned a couple of times, Glenn Bell. (laughs) Glenn Bell was, first and foremost, a white (laughs) I'm going to say, like, guessing not from Jalisco. Like, yes. <laughs> and in case you're like, well, what do you think? How I his grandfathers were Swedish and German and his grandmothers were, quote, predominantly English. So. So white. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just setting the scene to let you know <laughs> who the guy is. OK, uh-huh. so he was born in 1923 in Linwood, California. Uh, he grew up during the Great Depression. He served during World War II. On the food that built America, historian and writer Hadley Mears describes Bell as, quote, a man who perfectly sums up the greatest generation. So he was somebody who was really like you know, like, I believe in my country. I believe in the American dream. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to succeed. I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to, like, do this thing. Mm -hmm. In 1948, he opens Bell's Drive-In. It's a hot dog stand in San Bernardino. He struggles with that hot dog stand for years. He eventually ends up selling the hot dog stand, and he opens Bell's Hamburgers, right across Mount Vernon Avenue from Meatla Cafe. There is one picture I found from probably around this time 
of Mount Vernon mm -hmm. Avenue and St. Bernardino. And you can see Meatla's Cafe on one side. And then across the street is a little hamburger stand. Mm -hmm. The story goes that Bell's hamburger joint was struggling. So Bell had nothing to do but watch people line up outside of Meatla all day. And he was like, what is happening? Yeah, what are like, they what doing? Is, right yeah, like what are they now? doing in there? Yeah. According to some of the older employees who are still working at Meatla, Wow. They remember a white guy who would come in late at night, ask a lot of questions about the food and leave. Mm -hmm. Bell loved the tacos dorados at Mintla, but he also was like, this is something that is going to be too spicy for most American palates. Mm -hmm. um, and again, when we mean spicy, we really mean like condimented. Right. <laughs> it's not like there's like crazy chili peppers in there. Right. So he's like, well, this is not like completely dissimilar from a cheeseburger. It's ground beef. Mm -hmm. lettuce, tomatoes, cheese, like, I, I think we can do something. So he starts tinkering with making his own recipe and he dumbs, like he dumbs down the chili powder enough to what he believes will be palatable for most Americans. Mm -hmm. He makes these tacos, these crispy tacos, and he throws them on the menu for 19 cents. And soon his predominantly white clientele are going nuts for these tacos. <laughs> that is apparently how non-Mexicans pronounce the word taco. I mean, I think my grandfather, if I remember, he always said taco. Taco. That's not as bad as a taco. taco you want to go get some tacos? Bad. Yeah. That's pretty bad. Within a few years, Bell opens a couple of quick service food joints that are only selling tacos. And he, throughout this time, he has two partners. One is Ed Hackbarth, uh, is a guy who's actually like a general manager at one of them. Ed would go on to start Del Taco. Oh, okay. Okay. And like the places are doing okay, but he's also like doing some consulting and stuff on the side for other fast food restaurants. He helped the Wiener Schnitzel people. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like it, I mean, you can say a lot about Del Taco and how he got the taco, but he was also like somebody who was like fast fucking food. Let's do just, this. When you said the Wiener Schnitzel people, uh -huh. I just imagine like a bunch of like Oompa Loompas and weird German like overalls like dancing in later hosen is that what you're talking yeah. about <laughs> yeah also known as later hosen yeah <laughs> so he's doing all of this stuff he's working he's doing this stuff he's consulting for other restaurants and his wife divorces him his wife is like you're fucking never here i'm out and right. he's like okay fine take the taco stand <laughs> he gives her like the original tacos no he gives her i think the original uh like burger stand where he'd been selling this. he gives her something Al McDonald, no relation to the McDonald brothers, is his second partner. And Bell is like, I think we should franchise. Like, I think we could do this. I think we could take this national. I think we should franchise. And Al McDonald is like, not interested. Mm -hmm. He's like, I don't want to do that. I'm not interested in that. I think we've got a good thing going here. So Bell says, okay, I'm going to sell you my shares of this taco joint, and I'm going to go do my own thing. Mm -hmm. In 1962, Bell opens another taco place in Downey, California, and this time he decides to put his name on it. It is, of course, Taco Bell. Mm -hmm. The menu consists of tacos, burritos, tostadas, beans, and a chili burger. Bell desperately wants to franchise, but the thing that he's finding is he's like cold calling people across the country to be like, hey, you want to start a franchise of this taco business is that people are like, Fuck no. What about, like, like, wait, what, what are you even talking about? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're like, what are you talking about? That sounds spicy. That sounds greasy. Like, <laughs> nobody's going to buy it. Yeah. I don't want it. Right. And he's like, fudge. Because he knows, like I said, he 
you looked at the taco. Yeah. yeah, he looked at the taco and he was like, it's not far from a from a burger. Like if you can yeah. eat a burger, you can eat a taco. And so he knows, he knows that if people try tacos, they're going to like them. It's just that nobody wants to try them. It's not adventurous. Right. So he di- he redirects and he comes up with this idea that if he can't get franchisees to open up Taco Bells on the basis of the good food, he'll be able to get them on board if people think that owning a Taco Bell will make them rich. Mm. He handpicks a franchisee by the name of Kermit Beck. Beck is a retired LAPD officer and he's like, cool, like, this sounds awesome, but I have no restaurant business. Mm-hmm. And Bella's like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I will do everything. Mm-hmm. I will run the store. I'll make the tacos. I'll mop the floors. All I need you to do is spend the money. Right. And Beck is like, what do you mean? And he's like, I just want you to spend the profits that we make from this as like ostentatiously as you can. So you look super rich. Yeah. yeah. And so Beck is like, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> So he sets Beck up as this like decoy franchisee. Like I said, Bella's doing all of the work. He's working mm-hmm. seven days a week. He's answering phones. He's doing all of the work. And Beck is out there and he's buying cars. He buys a boat that he's named <laughs> that he names the Taco Bell, like B-E-L-L-E, the Taco Bell. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's just spending money left and right. And the fucking thing works. Well, it sounds like this guy knew how to be a cheerleader. So Yeah. Yeah. Bell's phone starts ringing off the hook. Mm-hmm. In less than two years, 55 Taco Bells open across California and Arizona. And I think like in the year after that, one to two locations are opening every week. Wow. Yeah. By 1967, there are 100 Taco Bells, but Bell is hemorrhaging money and he's like like new franchisees are coming in and giving him money and he's taking that money to pay for the like the other franchisees buildings mm. it's this whole house of cards and he's say, like it almost sounds like a pyramid scheme kind of yeah it kind of does <laughs> and again he's doing like a lot of work yeah right the whole thing is about to come tumbling down Until he has another light bulb moment. Up to this point, fast food is seen as a lunch and family dinner option. They're not places like they're places that close pretty early. You know, they're like you have them for meals and that's it. But Glenn Bell realizes that there is a different untapped market that they are not serving to. And that is drunk people late at night. Yeah. So Bella's like, what if we just stay open later? So he extends the dining room hours to 11 p.m. And the business goes insane. Yeah. Yeah. I will also say, I know this. (laughs) Scotty, you probably know this as well. I 100% know people who will not touch Taco Bell when they are sober. Mm -hmm. But you get a couple of drinks of them and they're like, can we go buy Taco Bell? Yeah. No, I'm one of those. I mean, I'm not not saying I won't touch Taco Bell. Like, I'm not that. I'm not that uh, hipstery about it, but like, it's not my favorite. You particularly living in Albuquerque, it's like, I can go get like the real thing. But man, after like hitting the bars when you're like coming home and it's like the one place that's like the drive through still open and like nothing's gonna like, oh my God, soak up that liquor. Yeah. And you'll blow, you'll blow like a hundred dollars at Taco Bell. (laughs) You know what I mean? And like, not even think about it. Yeah. I, 
don't, sort of similarly to what you said, if I'm going to eat a taco in Albuquerque, there's there's other places I'll go first. And there's other like local places that are also mm-hmm. open late. Um, I mean, right. there's a reason that the frontier is like, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> yeah, just sometimes it, I don't want to deal with the frontier. Yeah, I don't want to go down to the frontier Arcane, and stuff. Yeah, but there's a very good reason why that place is open late and why yeah. it's busy late is because people are like, right. yes, tacos, New Mexican food. the food is much better than Taco Bell. So good. Yeah. But I will say the most I have eaten Taco Bell in the last 10 years is the summer I was in Omaha uh-huh. and the summer I was in Abingdon, Virginia. Yeah, makes sense. Like, when there is no other Mexican food, you were like, give me that. Give, give me, me something. A, give me an eight pack of soft tacos immediately. Right. Right. <laughs> so the late hours are so successful that McDonald's and Wendy's soon follow suit. Okay. By 1970, Bell takes Taco Bell public. At this time, they have 325 restaurants. Mm-hmm. By 1978, when Bell decides to retire, he sells all 868 Taco Bells to Pepsi and he pockets over $30 million from wow. the sale. Today, there are over 8,000 Taco Bell locations around the world, bringing in over $12 billion a year. Mm-hmm. There have been, this is an incomplete list, but there have been locations in China, India, Indonesia, Malaysia, Japan, Philippines, Singapore, South Korea, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Cyprus, Finland, Greece, Iceland, the Netherlands, Poland, Portugal, Romania, Russia, Spain, the UK, Kuwait, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Brazil, Chile, Peru, Colombia, and Ecuador. Mm -hmm. Unsurprisingly... Taco Bell has never been able to find a foothold in Mexico. Yeah, I would not think. I mean, I would think they'd be like, what are you doing? Very we much don't, so. We don't we don't need this. <laughs> Very much so. We're good. We're set. Yeah. As for Meat La Cafe, whose tacos served as the inspira- as the inspiration for Glenn Bell's Taco Bell, they continue to thrive today and mm. they remain a staple of San Bernardino's food and cultural scene. Their Instagram account is adorable and it is full of like there's a lot of historical pictures, pictures of like Lucia and um shit, what was his name? Salvador? Yeah. Ugh. Was that it? Yeah. Um, Pictures of the kids and stuff. Pictures of like, you know, old menus and the restaurant of what it looked like. It also is full of posts about food drives. They are instrumental, I believe, in something called Feed the IE, which is Feed the Inland Empire. They have calls to vote and shop local, you know, all of this with included with pictures of their like amazing looking food. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, there are a few gentle jokes made at the expense of Taco Bell. One of the things I, I saw on there, <laughs> one of the things I saw on there was Taco Bell was just voted the number one Mexican food restaurant in the country. This is what happens when you don't vote. Like it's, <laughs> it's, you know what I mean? Like it's like right. gentle yeah, ribbing. Like a little poke. Yeah. Author Gustavo Arellano, who I mentioned before, went to Mitla to get to the bottom of the Mexican restaurant that inspired Glenn Bell. This is fascinating. Glenn Bell had an authorized biography, right, mm-hmm. that was written. And you should – I'll see if I can find it to post the picture of it on social media. It's like <laughs> a regular, like, black and white picture of him and, like, a superimposed, like, sombrero. It's ridiculous. Oh, but he wrote this book <laughs> and he taught – he's oh, – he's and he was always open about it, that he was like, yes – 
I was inspired by the crispy tacos that were sold at, you know, like at a place in San Bernardino, Mm. but he never mentioned the restaurant by name. Interesting. Yeah. And he was always like, yeah, it was this, it was like Mexican joint that was across the street from my burger stand. So Gustavo had the address of the original burger stand and went down there and he was like, maybe I can like, maybe, maybe I can track it down. Maybe I can like you know, figure out Mm -hmm. what this was. And he's sitting there and he's sitting on Mount Vernon Avenue and he sees the burger stand. And then he's like, Oh, meatless cafe is right. And he's like, there's no fucking way. There's no way that it was the place right across the street and that the place is still there. Mm -hmm. So he goes in there and that's when the employees are like, Oh yeah, yeah, we remember this little white dude who used to come in here. Interesting. So he goes back, like when he does this, he goes back and he expects if he brings up, if he brings this up to the owners that he's going to be met with like anger and bitterness. And maybe even like, they're going to be like, yeah, like, you know, we're trying to get together a lawsuit against Taco Bell, blah, 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 blah. Not at all the case. Instead, co-owner Irene Montano said, quote, good for him and reasoned (laughs) that and reasoned that Meatless had never suffered because of Glenn Bell, had been in business longer than Taco Bell. And besides, she said, quote, our tacos were better. And that (laughs) is the story of the Inland Empire's oldest continually running Mexican restaurant and the surprising origin of Glenn Bell's tacos (laughs) that's uh if we do ever manage to make another road trip out there that's got to be a stop i feel almost bad calling him the inland empire hell on earth but it's like the traffic is awful out there but that's the thing about places like san bernardino and i know downey um i've been through Mm -hmm. like and really all of the la area is it'll be just like strip malls and and big box stores and stuff and then these pockets of like well there's like something that's been there forever that's like yeah something cool that's like yeah has not been totally swallowed by everything else so yeah it is kind of neat to like find those little pockets of things that still exist out there. yeah yeah i would love to go there and like i said like their little instagram account is uh, i say little they've probably got like a ridiculous amount of followers mm. hold on i'm gonna look it up right now um beep 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 <laughs> Interesting thing also, the first Taco Bell that was built in Downey was a Taco Bell, I think until 1987. Mm. And then something else took it over and was there. Some of the restaurant took it over and was there until like 2005. And then the building sat abandoned for a really long time. And they were like, we need to do something with this building. And Taco Bell was like, go grab it. Mm -hmm. And bring it. And so it now sits in the parking lot at Taco Bell headquarters. And like people, people talk about how they saw, you know, like a big flatbed truck in the middle of the night hauling the original Taco Bell building to Taco Bell headquarters. (laughs) That's cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Okay. Yeah, they have like, they have nearly 8,000 followers, but they're a really good time. But like, I'm like, can you see that? that? Yeah, that looks real good. Like, look at that. Yeah, so if you're in the area, if you're in the San Bernardino area and you haven't eaten there, go eat there. Check out the tacos episode of Ugly Delicious. That's also a cool Netflix food show. Uh, a lot of really cool stuff in there. You, There are a couple of Armenian Mexican folks who talk about 
how Mexican food was, uh, Mexican cuisine has been influenced by all of these people who came into Mexico. Yeah, very, very, very cool story. Yeah, no, that that is really cool. And I am fat. I'm like I've been. I haven't read. You know, the Taco Bell story is totally new to me. But I've read a little bit about like the history of um, McDonald's and. I know Carl's Jr. is based out there, and I'm kind of fascinated by that L.A. fast food car culture thing that yeah. you know, Southern California thing from the 50s. It just seems very, very specific to that time and place, you know? And it's, there was a lot of really interesting stuff happening with food between the 50s and 70s mm-hmm. um, because you had this shift into fast food and convenience foods and then as we start going into the 60s and 70s and you start getting into like the women's liberation movement this is a whole episode that I want to look into but there is um have you heard of the this thing they're called trad wives? Mm-hmm. It's like the women out there that are like, uh, feminism is like whatever. And like, I want to stay home and like cook for my man and blah, blah, right. blah. And there's a lot of people who are coming out and being like, a bit of history for you. The women that you're talking about, you're talking about your grandmother and you want to do things how she did things. She didn't cook for herself. Mm-hmm. She had full-time domestic help mm-hmm. that was cooking. And when that ended, she started doing convenience food. Right. So, yeah, like, well, that's like, I think about like my grandmother's food because she made a lot of, you know, New Mexico cuisine type dishes, but her methods were so efficient. And that's because she, it was like, it was all family recipes going back for God knows how long, but it was like very much about like, what's the easiest, quickest, best way to make stuff. Cause she was just making stuff for the family all the time. Watching my grandmother make sopapillas was amazing because she could do it so fast. Yeah, there is a scene in that Ugly Delicious where one of the, I only watched that episode of the show, so I don't quite know the format of it, but there's a guy and he goes down somewhere in like rural Mexico mm-hmm. and he's there with a woman who's a chef and she has this whole thing that she wants to do. She's Mexican-American um, <laughs> and she talks a lot about how she's like, I want to go and I want to become like, I want to become this like Mexican food chef and her dad, who's a Mexican immigrant is like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, I brought you to this country so that you wouldn't have to be in that country. I know you're going back to that country. And she's mm-hmm. like, I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they go out and they are making tortillas. And this is cool because we talk about food appropriation, right? Mm-hmm. And this is the thing that Gustavo Arellano talks about is that he's like, yes, absolutely 100% Glenn Bell stole the taco mm-hmm. from Meatless. But let's be real about how we are all appropriating food from all different cultures. And he goes into a lot of what I was talking about, the sort of like anthropology of Mexican cuisine. Well, he said it goes back to Lebanon. Yeah. And and all that cool stuff. And he has an interesting attitude on it. But this woman, the chef, she is going and she is learning how to do these dishes and how to use these plants and these herbs and stuff from these women. And she is paying these women to do the work for her. Mm -hmm. Right. So like that's the way that you want. And she herself is Mexican as well. You know what I mean? It's not like she's but whatever. Well, there's appropriation and then there's like celebration and appreciation and and not exploitation you know right doing it the right way right (laughs) and there's a scene where they're out there and they're making tortillas and most people if they're making tortillas they do the ball of dough and then they put it in a press right to do Mm -hmm. it these women are like doing it by hand Mm -hmm. 
and they're like giggling at the man who's trying to do it and they're like stop they basically like they're like stop 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 and they take it away from him and they've crank out from ball to tortilla they like crank out this tortilla and it is perfect it is a yeah perfect circle they're all the same size well that was like like i said my grandmother with the sopapillas was like yeah she'd have the batter she'd have the like the oil you know simmering on the in the pan and she would just like flick the batter into the oil and it would be like for like a second and then immediately scoop it out and it would puff up yeah and her sopapillas were like always perfectly shaped so thin like just so thin and crispy but like with just enough like soft gooeyness on the inside yeah but she could do i mean she could do one soap of pm like literally two seconds it was yeah. incredible yeah well you start when you are doing something every day for yeah forever for decades yeah you get to a point where you're like yeah you know like you see chefs who like you know take apart a chicken and you're like how yeah. how are you doing this that fast yeah yeah. You know, it's, it's that crazy. was always one of my favorite challenges on what is it? Top chef where they'd have to do the mise en place. So they'd have to mm-hmm. like chop a bunch of onions and stuff. And I was always just like, I love this. I'm yeah. so here for like watching these people <laughs> go through like a bucket of onions. That's that's awesome. So that's my story. Um, I got real into the food that built America. So probably be expecting more food stories from me in yeah. the coming weeks. Sorry, <laughs> cool. not sorry. <laughs> Okay, well, as uh, often behooves us on The Weirdest Thing, my uh, story has nothing to do with yours and is super different. So, okay. <laughs> I And I think, as I told you before, as we were getting ready to restart the show, I kind of wanted to do something like spooky adjacent or like cozy spooky. So like, okay, this isn't one you're going to, you're not going to have to go like lock your doors and check. Okay. Out, so. I was literally about to ask because I was like, um. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think so. This is, I don't have a cold open or anything, but this is very like classic story that is obviously something that a lot of people have talked about over the years but i'm going to get into it myself so tonight we're talking about the strange life and very strange death of edgar Allan poe oh let's yeah let's get into it and like yours i have a ton of sources i had to like definitely like whittle things down and like stop the the rabbit holes because there's like a million with Edgar Allan Poe. Dude, it, it was very similar with my story that I started to be like, you know, yeah. I, like going into things and I was like, I, I, I can't, I can't <laughs> yeah. like, I'm fascinated with all of this. I could literally do like an entire series on Edgar Allan Poe, but we're not going to do that. Okay. Um, so this is, I'm just going to talk, you know, somewhat about his life and career and then like the weirdness around his death. So okay. my sources are Wikipedia, uh, a book from a guy named Jeffrey Myers called Edgar Allan Poe, His Life and Legacy, mm-hmm. um, an article from the Smithsonian Magazine, the website poedecoder.com, the website poemuseum.com, um, an article from pbs.org, an article from Upworthy, from All That's Interesting, from Biography.com, from History.com, from The Washington Post, from Popular Mechanics of all places, mm-hmm. and even from the Deseret News. Okay. Like I said, there's a lot. Okay, so who the hell was at Allan Poe? Well, I guess before we get into it, I just, I'm curious, like, what do you know about the death of Edgar Allan Poe? Like, what's the, what's the, uh, I, w- I want to say urban legend, but not quite, but like, what, what has made What's the lore? What's the lore that you know around his death? Okay, 
I will answer that, but I also want you to remember that we did a show called Poe that talked about Poe's death. So it's not that I know nothing, but what I do know is he was like found, right? Like, Uh like close to death, like nearly dead. Mm -hmm. And they thought that maybe he had been doing those things where it's like you go and you're like, I'm here to vote. And then you like go to another polling place and you're like, I'm here to vote. I haven't voted before, or maybe I'm a whole different person. Mm-hmm. And that I want to say like, oh, there was something like they thought that maybe he'd been, he'd been drinking heavily. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember if they thought that he had been poisoned or if that he would just had like essentially like alcohol right. poisoning from how much he'd been drinking, but that he, it was it a death, not at all befitting like who he was and his exactly. contribution. That's the thing about our group. Like, you know, I grab on Poe. He's known for sort of creating the modern horror story um, in a lot of ways. Although I always give, I like to give Mary Shelley credit for that as well. But, but I would say like he really created like kind of the modern horror story. You right. Know, like he pushed it into almost like he was way ahead of his time. Mm-hmm. He also created kind of the modern detective story. You know, the modern mystery. And so the fact that his death is so mysterious is like it's just. Perfect. And like you hit you hit a lot of like the big things. It's like I think a lot of people know that like he was found in a gutter, he was raving, he was yeah, you know, maybe died of alcoholism, maybe I'm gonna get into the 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 voting thing. That that's one of the big theories. Maybe he had a brain tumor, but he died very mysteriously. He lived a fairly unhappy life. Now, one thing that that is a misnomer about Poe, or is a mis or I should say misconception about Poe, I think. A lot of people mm-hmm. think that he was like unknown in his lifetime. Um, that's very much not true. He was super famous in his lifetime, but he was poor. Yeah, which I think, which is again why it's like, mm-hmm. how did he end up dying like this? Right, exactly. No, he he was a very well known writer at the time, but he was practically penniless when he died. And I'll talk, yeah. I'll talk some about that as we go. But anyway, let's go back to the beginning. So Edgar Poe was born in Boston, Massachusetts on January 19th, 1809. Mm-hmm. He was the second child of an actor named David Poe and an English actress named Elizabeth Arnold Hopkins Poe. And this is- Hey, wait, hold on. When did you say he was born? 1809. But the date? Uh, January 19th. Which is when this episode is going to be coming out. Oh, hey. <laughs> I did not even plan that. That's crazy. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Creepo. Creepo. <laughs> that's, that's wild because I didn't even plan it. Okay. <laughs> that's nuts. Yeah. Okay. Happy birthday. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to call you no, a creepo. No, I'm, I'm well. He, I mean, not you, Edgar Allan Poe. He kind of was. Uh, he kind of was. He was, he was creepy. He wasn't like, he, he was creepy in like a spooky way. He wasn't um, creepy as in like a, well, a little we'll, like, we'll eh, get but uh, we'll get there. <laughs> um, I mean, he was creepy the way all men of that time period are creepy. We'll get there. So, so yeah, January 19th, 1809, he was the second child of actor David Poe and an English actress named Elizabeth Arnold Hopkins Poe. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a whole rabbit hole you can go down uh, with his family. I'm just going to spend a little bit of time talking about them. So David and Eliza, they married in 1806. They were very young. Eliza's first husband, Charles Hopkins, died only six months before. I think she married Charles when she was like 15 or something. Oof. David, when she married David, he was 21 and she was 18. Okay. They were actors together. They of, they often, or at least sometimes, would share the stage. Mm-hmm. But he was very much seen to be the inferior of the two. <laughs> 
I bet that went over great. Wow. Because yeah. <laughs> if I know anything about dudes is they love yeah. <laughs> when their wife is better at something. Particularly dudes <laughs> with these kind of problems. So Yes. Yeah. He was often. Not, hashtag not all men. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> but don't, don't at me. Hashtag these men. Um, so, hashtag these men. <laughs> so Eliza, she was often cast in leading roles like Ophelia and Hamlet or Juliet, Romeo mm-hmm. and Juliet. She got rave notices, rave reviews for her performances. Meanwhile, like David would end up in like these minor or supporting roles. And regularly the critics would be like, that dude sucks. Like he's no good. Why is he, what's he doing? There's a lot of theories that he actually, he really wanted to be an actor, but he suffered from stage fright. Uh, um, so he would get up on stage and just like kind of lock up. Uh, well, as you can imagine, this did not uh, lead to a very happy marriage. So their first son, William Henry Leonard Poe, was born in January of 1807. And almost exactly two years later in January 1809, Edgar was born. Mm. In that time period, David had become an increasingly embittered alcoholic. And of course, drinking problems run very much in the family um yeah. i'm gonna talk about that because none of the pose could hold their liquor and that's like part of the theories around his mm. uh, around edgar's death but uh, so he became very bitter he was uh an alcoholic i didn't read anything specific about him being like abusive but i would imagine perhaps yeah it's not it's not a, a stretch to not believe a stretch. that that might have been However, we will also say that it might not be anywhere in there because everybody was abused. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and there's a lot, there's like a lot of weird gaps that I was having a hard time filling in. So like mm. one thing is like David, you know, he became this like bitter alcoholic. And then sort of right after Edgar was born, I think within a two, three months, he just abandoned the family. Yeah. And completely vanishes from the historical record. No one knows what happened to him. Wow. Eliza then gave, this is another rabbit hole. Um, she then gave birth to a daughter, Rosalie, Rosalie Poe, Rosalie or Rosalie, I don't know, uh, in December of 1810. She would have been conceived sort of not long before David left, um, uh-huh. but there's a lot of questions about Rosalie's paternity. So Edgar and his family have always claimed that David Poe was Rosalie's father, but rumors always swirled. One of the men rumored to be her father was an actor named John Howard Payne. Mm-hmm. And then, oddly, there was a wealthy man in Richmond, Virginia. Um, his name, let's see, I did not write his name down. You can find his name, but I forgot to write it down. Uh, but he's a rich man in w- Richmond, Virginia, who left young Rosalie $2,000 in his will when he died in 1818. No one really knows why. Like, Rosalie was his only charity bequest. And it's not really known how he even knew of her. It's possible he just heard the sad story of an orphan mm-hmm. who was without parents. But he decided to leave her money. So a lot of people are like, well, he must have been her father. But again, no one really knows. Yeah. Uh, what we do know is that Eliza died in 1811, uh, the mother, okay. when Edgar was still just a toddler. He was two years old. Um, she died of tuberculosis. And this, of course, is going to be a recurring theme in Edgar Allan Poe's yeah. life. Um, women dying specifically of TB. Um, I think she was 24 years old when she died. And so then Edgar was taken into the family of uh, John Allen, who was a successful merchant in Richmond, Virginia. And he had made his money selling things like tombstones, tobacco, wheat, and of course, slaves. I could not find anywhere how John Allen might have 
been connected to Eliza or maybe David Poe. I'm not sure why he took Edgar. In. I'm also not mm. sure he did not take Rosalie. In. I know that she was adopted by another family called the Mackenzies. I'm not sure where Henry, the older brother, ended up. If he was also taken by John Allen or not. Like I couldn't really find that confirmed anywhere. So I don't mm. really know. God, how awful. Yeah, but he, but John Allen was one of the people who had called Rosalie's paternity into question. He actually wrote a letter to Henry Poe, Henry Leonard Poe, the older Mm -hmm. brother. And he had said of Rosalie, the younger sister, he said, quote, God may yet bless him. It's talking about Edgar and you. And that success may crown all your endeavors. And between you and your poor sister, Rosalie may not suffer. At least she is half your sister. And God forbid, my dear Henry, that we should visit upon the living the errors and frailties of the dead. So he's kind of suggesting that, like, Rosalie was the product of Mind your business, bruh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kind of. Like, do you need to be telling What's it to her you? brother <laughs> Um, but yeah, so she was adopted by a separate family, the McKenzie's. She's also got a really interesting life. Henry has a really interesting sort of sad life. Again, rabbit holes I didn't really go down. So, uh, but Edgar, he was taken in by John Allen and his family. He was baptized in the Episcopal Church. He had a, let's say, complicated relationship with his foster father, who I don't believe ever legally adopted him. Mm-hmm. John Allen was both, he would go between being very like supportive and and kind of almost spoiling Edgar but then also was this like strict disciplinarian never approved of anything yeah that Edgar did but they had several fallings out fallings out and then reconciliations over the years yeah Edgar was eventually sent to a boarding school in London where he stayed until 1817 um where he would so I guess he would have been about eight years old and then he finally moved back to the U.S. to live with the Allens in 1820, when he was a young teenager. In 1826, he entered the University of Virginia to study ancient and modern languages. Apparently, the University of Virginia was, like, brand new at the time. It was founded by Thomas Jefferson. It was, like, very kind of liberal. It's like, you get to pick your own classes, you know. Uh, But they had some very strict rules on, like, gambling, alcohol use, tobacco, except they didn't enforce any of these rules. What the but, fuck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so it okay. was while he was at UVA that Edgar started to explore some of his vices, specifically gambling. Oof. He ended up in severe gambling debts. Uh, this was his first kind of blowout with his um, foster father uh, where they had a big um, falling out because he sort of accused John Allen of not giving him enough money for his studies and to buy books and stuff. And John Allen was like, no, I gave you the money. You're just gambling it away. And so... Yikes. Yeah. And then also at the same time, uh, while he was a teenager, Edgar had developed a relationship with a young girl. I think she was 15. She was like a year younger than him, I think. Her name was Sarah Elmira Royster. And they were like planning to get married. They were like deeply in love. But her father was like, I don't know about this Edgar Poe character. And so he basically, while Edgar was off at University of Virginia, her father stepped in, put a stop to it, kind of arranged for her to marry someone else. And she went off to marry, or went on to marry a man named Alexander B. Shelton. Okay. Who became very rich in the transportation industry. She had four children with him. Only two of them survived infancy. He he ended up dying in 1844. Alexander did. And he left her $100,000, which is equivalent to about $4 million today. Whoa! 
It was stipulated that she would lose about three quarters of this, though, if she ever remarried. And that's how. I mean, it's like it's in the contract. There's lawyers who are like looking over her shoulder, being like, But who who was going to take the money, and what was going to happen to it? Um, I don't know. I mean, but apparently this was a thing. (laughs) Yeah, it's not so much to you as that. I would have been like, come and get it. You know what I'm doing? Bye. I'm leaving with my four million U.S. dollars. Yeah, I mean, she could have probably like moved to like Europe or something, and they couldn't. But but no one thought of that. (laughs) (laughs) you're like stop ruining my story (laughs) well i'm not disagreeing with you i'm just saying like that that was super not what happened (laughs) basically she was living with this threat of like you're gonna lose your inheritance so if you get married this is gonna like be important later in the story okay okay come back up how old Um, around about how old is she when he dies uh when uh her husband dies yeah 1844 she's like a year younger than she would have been like 34 i think like mid 30s i would have effed everybody and been like i didn't marry him i didn't marry (laughs) (laughs) well i mean that well we'll get there okay finding those loopholes right (laughs) so like i said you know edgar he's real bond because this is like the love of his life yeah she's gotten you know she's been married off to this other guy he's off at uva you know drinking and gambling and essentially flunking out of school he ended up dropping out you know he had all these gambling debts he lost touch with sarah Elmira royster uh like i said love of his life had a big falling out with his father or his foster father and within a year he had dropped out of uva he moved to boston in 1827 his plan was to work as a newspaper writer but he just wasn't able to make ends meet so he ended up joining the army in May of 1827, he joined the army under the name of Edgar A. Perry, giving a false age. He was, what's crazy is like how much, like he's already flunked out of school, gambling, that's blah, 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 blah. Fell in love with the love of his life, watched her get married off, and he's only 18. So he goes to join the army, he changes his name to Edgar A. Perry, and he claims to be 22. Okay. So he gets in under false pretenses. Okay. He served at Fort Independence in Boston, where he earned $5 a month. It was in that time period he published his first book of poetry. It was called Tamerlane and Other Poems. Mm -hmm. It was released anonymously. It was attributed only to, quote, a Bostonian. And only 50 copies were made, and nobody paid attention. No one gave a fuck. And um, Tamerlane is the name of one of the children in the ha- Fall of the House of Usher, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And it's and I and it's one of his like more famous poems. Okay. So no, in November of that year, the regiment was sent down to Fort Moultrie in South Carolina, and Edgar was promoted to the position of I think he was like a sergeant in charge of preparing the shells for artillery. This was considered sort of a dangerous job, so his monthly salary was essentially doubled. So now he's making ten dollars a month. Mm. Um, um, he served two years. Um, he attained the rank of Sergeant Major for Artillery, which was the highest rank a non-commissioned officer could receive. Um, he had signed on for a five-year commitment, but he decided the Army wasn't for him. He didn't want to be in the Army anymore. He wanted to get out early. So he went to his commanding officer. was a guy named Lieutenant Howard. He was like, hey, so here's the deal. I lied <laughs> when I signed up. My name's actually Edgar Poe. Um, I'm actually 18, not 22. So kick me out. Thanks. Bye. And this Lieutenant Howard is like, nah, we're not going to, we're not going to do that. Uh, Only way I'm going to agree to you being discharged is if you reconcile with your foster father, Jarvis. 
So, which is, um, again, it's like a little bit mind your business, but. I yeah, guess... there's a lot of, lot of busy bodies <laughs> yeah. in, in, in Boston at this time. Well, I get the impression this is the 1800s for you. Everyone's just kind of in each other's grill, you know? Yeah. Uh, so Edgar's like fine and he writes to his foster father Alan who doesn't write him back like ignores him and he writes several times to his foster father never hears back from him it's not really clear why but it is known that at the time his foster mother Frances Allen who I believe Edgar had actually been very close to Mm. was deathly ill and it's thought that maybe John didn't want to tell Edgar that she was about to die Mm. so she ultimately died in February of 1929. Edgar went and visited the family the day after the funeral, and he and his foster father reconciled then. And I guess they, I guess for whatever reason, John Allen's like signature was needed to support uh, Edgar's being discharged. Okay. So John Allen agreed to support his discharge as long as he would join the U.S. Military Academy in West Point. Okay. So it's a little bit frying pan into the fire, I would think. Yeah. But at least here you can become, you know, as a non-commissioned officer, you can only make sergeant. So now he could theoretically work his way up the career ladder. Okay. Before moving to West Point, though, he decided to go stay in Baltimore for a while with his aunt, a woman named Maria Klim, who had, was the sister, I believe, of Eliza, his mother, who had died of tuberculosis. Okay. His brother Henry was already staying with Maria. I think maybe... She, I think the way it maybe worked is she took Henry, the Allens took Edgar, and then the McKenzie's took Rosalie after Eliza died. I think that's why they were split up. But anyway, so Henry is there with Maria Klim, and then his little cousin, Virginia, is also there. Virginia being Maria's daughter. Okay. Let's put a pin in Virginia. We're going to come back to Virginia. But let's, this is where uh, Edgar goes from being like, oh, you're a creepo because you wrote creepy things to like, no, you're actually a creepo. Yeah. Uh, in the way that, like, Piercy Shelley was a <laughs> So, all the while, Edgar's continuing to publish poetry. He's finally starting to receive a little bit of notice, uh, particularly from a critic and writer, a guy named John Neal, who was, like, very... Like, John Neal's also a whole rabbit hole you can go down. He was, like, a, a very famous writer, this, like, self-taught author, writer, critic, who is, like, very much, like, wanted to foster an American literary movement, but mm. was, like, known for being, like, there's only two American writers of any merit out there. It's Edgar Poe and Nathaniel Hawthorne. So he was a big champion of Edgar Allan Poe. Um, okay. He also, uh, John Neal's also known for coining the term son of a bitch. It's the first person to put that into print. So, Wow. There you go. Good job, John Neal. What a, what a, what a legacy. <laughs> what a legacy. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he was a big supporter of Edgar Allan Poe. Poe would end up dedicating his second book of poems. It was called Al-Araf, Tamerlane, and Minor Poems to Neal. It was published in 1829. And then he went and joined or entered West Point as a cadet in 1830. Just a few months later, John Allen, his foster father, married his own second cousin. This pissed off Edgar, who I think had been very close to Francis Allen, his foster mother. He resented John Allen's remarriage. He resented that John Allen had had a number of extramarital affairs over the years, had a number of children who had been born out of wedlock. So they were fighting. And finally, John Allen was like, you know what? Fuck off. Mind your business. And he disinherited and disowned Edgar. So, wow. Okay. So that was, I think, basically the end of their relationship. Again, Edgar's like, why am I in the army? I don't want to be in the army, but now I'm here. I have to get myself out. So he decided to just get himself court-martialed. 
just like, here's here's one way I could get out. So he just start, started disobeying orders. He refused to attend formations, classes, or church. And then when he was brought up on court-martial, he pleaded not guilty, even though he knew that that meant he would be found guilty and that would lead to him being kicked out. It was like part of his whole master plan. Okay. So at that point, he moved to New York. He released a third volume of poetry, simply titled Poems. <laughs> it was reprinted several of the poems that... <laughs> from his first couple books but it included six new poems including early versions of to helen israfel and the city and the sea and then he went back to baltimore to live with his aunt brother and cousin virginia while he was there he was helping take care of his brother henry who like many of the men in the poe family was an alcoholic um whose health was failing and he died in 1831 Mm. it was like uh in his early 20s um Okay, so after Henry died, Edgar was like, I'm going to be a professional writer. This is what I want to do. This is the absolute worst time in American history to try to be a professional writer. Okay. Uh, A couple reasons. One was um, there was no international copyright law at the time. Right. Talk about this this with what's his butt. Right, right, right. Exactly. So this this kind of bit Edgar in the ass from two directions. (laughs) Because on one, he would publish stuff and then it would just get reprinted all throughout you know the uk or all throughout europe and he would see a dime from it yeah but also american publishers were like why do we want to pay american authors when we can just steal charles dickens or whoever's books and republish them unauthorized right um so it was just really hard to make money there was also a major depression called the panic of 1837 that lasted until the mid 1840s i started reading about it and i was like nope uh, do not it was like banking blah 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 central bank this and that i was like i don't care I, I listen don't here's the thing is that <laughs> banking i guess probably up until after the depression right mm-hmm. like after like the great depression i think is when people finally got together and were like should we <laughs> should we put some rules on this? yeah should we like figure this out because people yeah. like keep losing their entire life savings <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um yeah. And this yeah. was this was like a. It sounds like I don't know if it was on the level of the Great Depression, but it was a major depression. Yeah, lasted for nearly a decade, at least into the mid 1840s. Meanwhile, Edgar's like one of the very first Americans who's trying to make his living solely off of writing. On top of this, he's very difficult to get along with. He's got these vices, and he's got this problem with drinking. But here's the thing: is that a lot of you know, there's this this lore about Edgar Allan Poe that he was just this drunk right he was just this debauched drunk but that's maybe not really true people like uh-huh. there's a lot of contradictory evidence some people say like yeah he did like to drink but he didn't really drink anymore than other people he would go out with his friends and like the problem was he couldn't hold his liquor like he would have one beer or one glass of wine or something and it would be like gone gone and so a lot of people and, and apparently this was also true of rosalie this is possibly true of his father um <laughs> that was weird <laughs> zoom is like chiming, chiming in here. <laughs> sorry you have to explain what just happened yeah i was like giving like a thumbs up and then zoom but, was like, like counting things off i was off. counting things off on my hand and then zoom was like i agree thumbs up zoom was like would you like to send a thumbs up reaction and we were like, both like no, i thought i thought you were being haunted or something like that i was, was like what is happening <laughs> no edgar Allan poe's ghost is like and now i'm trying mm, to yep. see now i'm trying to see if it'll yeah, do no, it I again get it to repeat oh anyway 
One. <laughs> Two. <laughs> nope. <laughs> what a jerk. Now it's not doing it again. Okay, whatever. Cut cut that cut all that out. Okay. No, I, that's actually <laughs> that's gonna end up being a clip probably for social media. <laughs> Super. We were both just like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, no, but so this is possibly true of his father, David Poe. This is possibly true of Henry Poe. And okay. as known to be true of Rosalie, is that they none of them could drink. Like they would have one drink and then they'd collapse. Were they like allergic or something? Well, so a lot of people think there must have been some hereditary like allergy alcohol allergy. Or maybe or they there was something that like they couldn't. Something about like processing the alcohol, right. something. Right, and so this this will play into like some of the theories around his death as well. Right, but uh, but what is known is that like the dude could not handle his liquor. So okay. you know he's trying to make this career as a writer, you know, but there's almost no way to actually make money at it, and he's drinking, and he's like he's again he's just a very difficult person to to deal with i think in a lot of ways he kind of also this around this time he kind of decided to switch his focus from poetry into fiction this is again largely probably inspired at least in part by john neal because john neal again he was praising him and nathaniel hawthorne and saying you know these are the two real american writers and you know trying to start this american literary tradition and i think he was like encouraging edgar like you should like write a novel you should you know just expand beyond writing poetry so he started publishing short stories but also articles theater reviews book reviews and various newspapers and magazines he ended up winning a prize in October of 1833 for a short story, Message Found in a Bottle, which is okay. a lot of people consider that's like his first sort of classic, like, masterpiece short story. Well, this is what, like, sort of made Edgar Allan Poe into Edgar Allan Poe. Mm, okay. And it brought him to the attention of a guy named John P. Kennedy, who was a wealth, wealthy Baltimorean who became an early supporter and helped him place more stories in other venues. Kennedy would also introduce him to a guy named Thomas White, who was the editor of a newspaper called the Southern Literary Messenger in Richmond. So White hired Edgar as an assistant editor, but then fired him like two weeks later because Edgar just kept showing him to work drunk. Yeah. So Edgar went back to Baltimore, moved in with his aunt, and then in 1835, he married his cousin, Virginia. Yes. And they're first cousins? They're first cousins. And it's very, uh, what's the the guy, uh, the Great Balls of Fire guy? Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. Yes. Same deal, married his 13-year-old cousin. Yes. Like, Virginia, Edgar, I think, was 29 at the time. And Virginia, or he was 20-something. Virginia was 13. They were married for 11 years. He doted on, and this is like, again, it's like Piercy Shelley. It's like, hey, you're a creeper because you married your 13-year-old cousin. But this was like kind of the, like his mother got married when she was 15. This wasn't unheard of at the time, you know? Yeah, I think I think that's the thing is that it's less about like this person is a creeper and like society as society a whole was a creep. Creeper. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like it was like, like it didn't matter. Right. If she's like my first cousin and she's like, and she's like 13 basically years a old. child. Right. Yeah. Like it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. You know? She's well, she, got two good birthing years left in her. We should start cranking them out now. Yeah, which they never did. I don't think they ever they never had mm. any children. But but they were married for eleven years. Mm. She ended up, and I'll get more into her, her death. But of course, as I think a lot of people know, she died also of tuberculosis. She was the same age as Edgar's mother, Eliza, when she died. She's twenty four. Mm. 
people point to the recurring deaths of women in his life is a theme that pops up in his work you know the Mm -hmm. the the tragic death of beautiful women Mm. is a theme that pops up in his uh stories and in his poetry specifically poems like lenore even Mm -hmm. the raven the, mm-hmm. the, the raven with the lost lenore yeah uh but that's for later but they marry 1835 he decides to clean up his act he goes back to this thomas white he convinces white to rehire him and he ends up actually staying at the southern literary messenger until 1837 uh working as an assistant editor while there the paper circulation increased from 700 to more than 3500 readers this is when edgar starts like his name really starts to become known but he's more known as like a critic than anything else at the time he did publish many stories many poems but he's also publishing articles and like book and theater reviews okay and he was really known to be like a very good critic that, that's kind of what he was famous for in 1838 they moved to philadelphia he wrote his novel the narrative of arthur gordon pym of nantucket and it was published while he was in philadelphia Mm-hmm. And then while there, he became the assistant editor of Burton's Gentleman's Magazine, where he also continued to publish articles, stories, and reviews. And this added more to his reputation, really, as a critic. And he was sort of like, the fiction and the poetry is kind of seen as almost more like a sideline for him. But then in 1839, he published his two-volume book, Tales of the Grotesque and Arabesque. These books included works like William Wilson, Legia, and The Fall of the House of Usher. They're obviously considered classics now uh but they were not necessarily that well received at the time so here's a mm. quote this is from that uh edgar Allan poe his life and legacy by jeffrey myers it says the grotesque tales were comic or satiric the arabesque which called the middle eastern influence on tamerlane and el araf were serious imaginative and poetic the book was dedicated to the eminent congressman and judge colonel william drayton who had befriended poe in philadelphia and may have subsidized the publication of the book in the brief preface Poe defended himself against the charges of Germanism and gloom and justly insisted, if in many of my productions terror has been the thesis, I maintain that terror is not of Germany, but of the soul. That I have deduced (laughs) this terror only from its legitimate sources and urged it only to its legitimate results. How fucking dour do you have to be as a people (laughs) <laughs> We're like you're, the name of your country is a synonym for like gloom. Yeah. <laughs> and I was trying, I was like, was there a specific meaning behind Germanism? They're like, no. It was like, no, just Germans are dour people, apparently. And like, um, and you know, this would of course carry forward in like German expressionism and stuff. But yeah. like, even back then, people are like, oof, German. God, and fucking serious fucking Germans. <laughs> gloomy motherfuckers which is so funny like they have so much to be happy about they make great sausage they make great beer they got got lederhosen i mean they got lederhosen yeah well cheer up it's interesting i don't know how you could be that dour and have like a national (laughs) costume of lederhosen (laughs) like it just feels like you would put them on and be like i feel great i know i just want to dance want to do yeah like no, but apparently Germanism was like a synonym for gloom. So he felt like he had to like defend himself. That is uh, such a read. I know. <laughs> <laughs> 
But anyway, but while it's now considered a classic, the book it flopped commercially and it didn't receive very good reviews. So here's again from that Edgar Allan Poe's Life and Legacy. It says the harsh, bewildered reaction of the Boston notion, which was looking for moral uplift, suggested that Poe's bizarre imagination was more suited to the taste of future readers than to his own time. It says, quote, the tales fall below the average of newspaper trash. They consist of a wild, unmeaning, pointless, aimless set of stories outraging all manner of probability and without anything of elevated fancy or fine humor to redeem them Mm. the congregation of nonsense is merely caricature run mad so not a fan the boston notion they they, they didn't like it well where's the boston notion now right exactly (laughs) it just makes me think of like famously the new york times critic harold bloom who's like Uh was like a total douchebag like sexist all about the Western canon and stuff. But, like, he had these, like, awful things he would say about Stephen King. It's just, like, this, like, hack, you know, torturing American letters and stuff. And, like, did you by any chance see Robert Downey Jr.'s spoilers, I guess, for the Critics' Choice Award? But Robert Downey Jr. won for Best Supporting Actor. No. Um, and he got up there and he was like, I love critics. Um, I'm really, really glad to be here. Here's a couple of the wonderful things that critics have said about me. And <laughs> it goes into like. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, you know what? Good for you. Good for you to be at the awards that are given by critics and to roast the critics like this right. and to be like, thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. God bless. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just loved it because like Edgar Allan Poe, like as a horror fan, I'm just so used to like horror as like, you know, the redheaded stepchild of like literary genres or whatever. Mm. It's just like, yeah, even going back to like Poe, it's like just nothing but hate, nothing but hate. Mm. But he was very popular. He was a very popular writer. Um, He did have his defenders, you know, obviously this was his name. Uh, John Neal was a big mm-hmm. supporter. Okay. So meanwhile, he's starting to think about, he wants to start his own literary journal called the stylus he kind of has this idea in 1840 and this is something he kept returning to in the last years of his life trying to get this literary journal off the ground he never Mm -hmm. could quite get it going Mm -hmm. this is also going to play into the story of his death a little bit okay he left burton's magazine after about a year uh he became a writer and co-editor of graham's magazine which was a successful monthly magazine in Philadelphia. And that's where he uh, published The Murders in the Room Morgue uh, in 1841, which is the story that's really seen as creating the genre of detective fiction. Mm-hmm. In 1842, Virginia began to show signs of consumption, tuberculosis. One day while she was playing the piano and singing, in Edgar's words, she, quote, broke a blood vessel in her throat. She never fully recovered. The illness continued to get worse. The stress of this led to more drinking on his part. He ended up leaving Grams. He unsuccessfully tried to get a government job. He tried to get on like John Tyler's presidential administration. He's like a big Whig supporter, supporter of the Whig party at the time. Okay. And then he, he was bouncing around the East Coast a bit. He moved to New York City. He moved to the Bronx. He's writing for different periodicals. In 1845... He published his poem, The Raven. It was published in the Evening Mirror, and it was a sensation. It made him a household. Mm. He was paid $9 for it. And, of course, it's reprinted all over the world. Of course. 
you know. Yeah. Virginia ends up dying at their cottage in the Bronx in 1847. Mm. So this is from biography.com. It says, in 1847, at the age of 24, the same age when Poe's mother and brother also died, Virginia passed away. Mm. Poe was overcome by grief following her death, and although he continued to work, he suffered from poor health and struggled financially until his death in 1849. After she died, he became increasingly erratic and unstable. Mm. He was very briefly engaged to a poet named Sarah Helen Whitman in Rhode Island, but then she put almost an immediate stop to the engagement because I think it didn't take her very long to be like, oh, you're a mess. Like, we're getting to the end. What? Come on. Why Zoom. does it keep popping up? <laughs> She's like, yeah, well, it's trying to help. That's it's trying the to worst. For it to pop up too. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's funny because it comes out as like a little thought bubble. Yeah. Like it's like bloop, 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 bloop. What if I do a thumbs down? No, it's still it's like whenever we try to get it to do it, it won't do it. You you had done it like kind of down here. I'm just like I don't even know what I was. That is so <laughs> thumbs up, thumbs down, nothing. Yep. Gosh, okay. So okay um anyway so sarah helen whitman she gets engaged to poe but then pretty quickly she's like you're a mess yeah this isn't gonna work she breaks off the relationship yeah he finally makes his way back to richmond um he's trying to raise money for his magazine uh this is around 1848 and who does he meet up with but uh sarah elmira royster his childhood sweetheart right so he apparently just popped in on her unannounced hadn't seen her in decades her husband's dead which i'm sure he probably knew so this is uh her quote she says i was ready to go to church and a servant told me that a gentleman in the parlor wanted to see me i went down and was amazed to see him i knew him instantly at the time she was 39 years old mm-hmm. she had a 19 year old daughter and a 10 year old son she was also known to be and said to be very attractive so this is a quote this is how she was described by her friend it was uh this friend said her eyes were a deep blue her hair brown touched with gray her nose thin and patrician her voice was very low soft and sweet her manners exquisitely refined and intellectually she was a woman of education and force of character her distinguishing qualities were gentleness and womanliness i'm not sure what womanliness means but we can probably imagine based on context yeah he invited so he was in town to uh like i said he was trying to raise money for this magazine he was also trying to like make money one way he was making money at the time is he was just going around and giving these lectures and readings and he was known you know as the author of the raven so he was Mm. like pretty famous he invited her to one of his lectures and she went and sat in the front row and they pretty quickly rekindled their relationship and even started talking about getting married and he said about her he says i think she loves me more devotedly than anyone i ever knew i cannot help loving her in return Hmm. so you know were they doing the loophole like you were saying around the marriage you know well uh we don't want to lose the inheritance but we're still going to bump some uglies or right uh if she was if she had refined manners and she was womanly she's also known to be very religious yeah no probably not deeply religious so i think that is 100 percent what i would do yeah. <laughs> yes. But different time, different people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, she I, I think that I think it was a very chaste. Yeah. But it does sound like they genuinely cared for each other. She it sounds like she really wanted to marry him. Mm-hmm. He really genuinely would have liked to have married her. I think she was. I mean, I do think as creepy as it was, I think he did love Virginia, his wife. Yeah. Uh, everything I read sounds like he was very good to her, but it does kind of sound like Sarah Royster was kind of really the love of his life. Her children weren't having it, though. 
because they knew that if she got married, she'd lose three quarters of her inheritance. So he was pressuring her for an answer. Like he really wanted, like, please marry me. And she kept putting him off and saying she needed to think about it. It's also probable that she had heard all the rumors of his like bad behavior, his drinking, mm. all that. So she was, she wasn't like this Sarah Whitman in Rhode Island who just like put a stop to the relationship, I think, but she was like treading cautiously. Yeah. So an attempt to convince her, he actually quit drinking. It's said that he quit drinking. He cleaned up his acts and he actually joined the Richmond chapter of the Sons of Temple. Wow. Okay. So was this just a bid to like trick her into like thinking he had cleaned himself up or had he genuinely cleaned himself up? It's one of the enduring mysteries because we're getting real close to his death. Yeah. So like I said, they never got married. He ended up leaving for New York on September 27th. He had some more, I think, readings. He was he was first supposed to go to Philadelphia to edit a collection of poems for a friend of his, a woman named Marguerite St. Leon Loud. And then he was going to go to uh, New York City. I think he was looking for an editor job and he was hoping if he could get a good job, he could convince Sarah to marry him and move to New York with him. So this was the plan. He left Richmond on September 27th. The night before he left, though, he went and visited a doctor in Richmond complaining of a fever. Mm. It's also known that when he arrived in Richmond, he was he had been sick from what he had described as a, quote, cholera attack. And among his symptoms were hallucinations. But he insisted that he hadn't been drinking. And he was, and he did recover enough to give a series of lectures and readings while he was there. So no one really knows what that's about. Like, yeah, clearly he, he was ill somehow. And it seemed like even though he had recovered in this time that he was spending with Sarah, before he left Richmond, he was starting, he had something that was giving him a fever. He left Richmond on September 27th and essentially vanished. He did not pop up again until October 3rd when he was discovered delirious in a gutter outside of Ryan's Tavern Ryan's Tavern in Baltimore. Mm. So this is like a week or so later and no one really knows what happened in that week. Okay. What we do know is that he wasn't supposed to go to Baltimore. He was supposed to go to Philadelphia and yeah. to New York. So why was he in Baltimore? So there was a guy uh, named Joseph W. Walker. Uh, he was a printer for the Baltimore Sun. He was just walking down the street. I think he was going to this Ryan's Tavern. And he saw this guy in the gutter. And he tried to like roust him. And he and he recognized him from the paper. He was like, this is Edgar Allan Poe. So he managed to track down an acquaintance of Edgar's. A guy named Joseph E. Snodgrass. Who I think lived in Baltimore. And he wrote him a letter. He said, dear sir, there's a gentleman rather worse for wear at Ryan's fourth ward polls who goes under the cognomen of Edgar A. Poe and who appears in great distress. And he says he's acquainted with you, and I assure you he is in need of immediate assistance. Yours in haste, Joseph W. Walker. Snodgrass would later also say that the note claimed that Edgar was in a state of beastly intoxication, but Snodgrass, well, we'll get to Snodgrass. Snodgrass has his own agenda of making Poe look bad. So Snodgrass went to find Poe. He described his his appearance as being, quote, repulsive. He said he had unkempt hair, a haggard and unwashed face, and, quote, lusterless and vacant eyes. He also seemed to be wearing someone else's clothes. He was described, like, everyone knew that he, Edgar Allan Poe was known to be a, a good dresser, and he wore this black cotton suit all the time. Right. Well, he was wearing a dirty shirt, no vest, dirty shoes, a straw hat. None of it fit well. Uh, so they called, they brought in a physician, a guy named John Joseph Moran. He described Poe's clothes this way. He said it was, quote, a stained, faded, old bombazine coat, pantaloons of similar character, a pair of worn-out shoes run down at the heels, and an old straw hat. Poe was never coherent long enough to explain how he came to be in this condition. It is believed the clothes he was wearing were not his own. 
not least because he was wearing shabby clothes that were out of uh, character for him. So Moran took Edgar to the Washington College Hospital and essentially locked him up in a room that they used to like keep the drunks in. It was almost like a prison cell with like bars. Yeah, like a drunk tank. Kind of. But it was like a separate room, a private room, bars on the windows. There was no way out. Like it was locked door. Yeah. And Moran was not letting anyone visit him. So the only person who was with Edgar Allan Poe the last few days of his life was this uh, doctor. So all the quote, like there's all this stuff about like Edgar Allan Poe's last words and all this stuff. This all comes from Moran. He is said to have repeatedly called out for someone named Reynolds on the night of his death. Nobody knows who he was referring to. It's possible he was talking about someone named Jeremiah N. Reynolds, who was a newspaper editor that was believed to have inspired the character and narrative of of Arthur Gordon Pym of the Nantucket. But it's also possible he was referring to someone named Henry R. Reynolds, who was a judge who was overseeing the Fourth Ward polls that day at Ryan's Tavern and who may have actually met Edgar there at the polls. And we'll mm. come back around to that because we'll talk about the whole election day thing. Um, he was also calling out for someone named Herring uh, or a Mrs. Herring. No one knows who this is. He had these moments of lucidity. Moran had said that he tried to cheer Edgar up, saying, like, soon you'll recover, you'll be in the company of your friends. And Edgar told him, quote, the best thing my friend could do would be to blow my brains out with a pistol. Wow. But again, this is all coming from Moran. So, like, a lot of people have been like, do we really trust this guy? He also supposedly talked about having a wife in Richmond. Since he was delusional, it's not clear. He might have been talking about Virginia, like, forgetting that she died. Or he might have been talking about Sarah Royster. When after his belongings where he said they'd been left behind at the Swan Tavern in Richmond, he ended up dying on October 7th of 1849. So just four days after being found. Hmm. At first, Moran claimed his final words were, Lord, help my soul. But later, uh, like, Moran changed his story so like (laughs) a lot of people doubt what moran was saying he ended up going around and lecturing like giving a lot of speeches and lectures on poe's death he wrote a lot about he was clearly capitalizing on the fame like i said the stories changed over time he he made untrue claims he claimed that he immediately contacted edgar's aunt maria clem before edgar died in fact he didn't contact her for a month after edgar's death Mm. also like at first he said edgar's last words were lord help my poor soul but then later he said his final words were quote the arched heavens encompass me and god has his decree legibly written upon the frontlets of every created human being and demons incarnate their goal will be the seething waves of blank despair so the new york herald published this part of the story and said quote we cannot imagine poe even of delirious constructing such sentences so yeah come on (laughs) there's a lot like to be doubted yeah. No, some people say that, well, Moran was just, he was trying to make Edgar look more pious in his final moments, which was apparently common at the time. People would often attribute these like religious sayings as people's last words, like, you know, Jesus, forgive me for all my transgressions. And then, you know. Right. Now, this was a little weird because I read some contradictory things. I read um, some places that said there are no records about Poe's death, including a death certificate. But then I read other places it says his death certificate said he died of phrenitis or swelling of the brain. So I don't know. Like, I don't know what the story is there. Okay. But it was reported in the papers that he died of this phrenitis, swelling of the brain. A Baltimore newspaper reported that he died of, quote, congestion of the brain. A lot of different theories have been proposed. So some people, you know, the alcohol theory is the earliest and big one. Snodgrass was the first 
who is really pushing this idea that he died of alcoholism. Mm. Snodgrass being the acquaintance that uh, Poe had called. But the thing is, Snodgrass was known to be like a supporter of the temperance movement. And he really saw Poe as like a very useful, like cautionary tale. Okay. Also, this other early friend of Poe's, this Joseph Kennedy, I think I think it was Joseph Kennedy, who, or yeah, J.P. Kennedy, who he's the one who had introduced him to the editor who gave him his first job. He also claimed that he died from alcoholism. He says, quote, on Tuesday last, Edgar Apo died in town here at the hospital from the effects of a debauch. He fell in with some companion here who seduced him to the bottle, which it was said he had renounced some time ago. The consequence was fever, delirium, and madness. And in a few days, the termination of a sad career in the hospital. Poor Poe, a bright but unsteady light, has been awfully quenched. Mm. So there's that theory. That was kind of the earliest theory. Other theories were that he had actually committed suicide. There's thoughts that he may have had a, a suicide attempt the previous year mm. um, from taking a laudanum overdose. But it's really not clear whether it was a suicide attempt or an accident. Also, I'm not sure that the suicide, like, doesn't really explain a lot of this. And also, like, he was actively trying to get his life together to try and woo Sarah Royster. So, like, it just doesn't quite add up to me. But we don't really know. Jeffrey Myers, the writer of the the book I quoted, uh, he thinks it was hypoglycemia. So he says, yeah, this is his quote. He says, Poe most probably suffered from hypoglycemia or low blood pressure or low blood sugar, possibly brought on by chronic liver disease, which can also induce altered states of consciousness. Hypoglycemia made it difficult for him to metabolize and tolerate alcohol, which always had an immediate disastrous disastrous effect on his system. The symptoms of this disease, which interferes with the supply of glucose to the brain, are extreme anxiety and excitement, followed by delirium, hallucinations, and coma. Mild confusion and sluggish, but occasionally wild and aggressive speech are followed by visual blurring, a feeling of uncertainty, then increasing ignorance of what is happening, the feeling of impending doom, fine muscular tremor, and lastly, excessive sweating. Poe experienced all these symptoms and probably died in a diabetic coma. So that's one possibility. Mm. Another person who uh, really made a point to, to further the drunken death, the drunken debauchery, Engel was a guy named Rufus Wilmot Griswold. He was a former rival of Poe's who somehow became executor of his estate. He wrote the first posthumous biography of Poe and portrayed him as, quote, a mentally deranged drunkard and womanizer. Now, it should be said that this doctor, this Moran, uh, he he always kind of says he, Edgar Allan Poe was not under the influence of any intoxicants when he died. Okay. So, you know, to him, he, he said that he did not think it was alcohol or directly alcohol related. Mm. Other theories include syphilis, a brain tumor, carbon monoxide poisoning. This would have been from the coal gas that was used for indoor lighting at the time. Uh-huh. Uh, possible heavy metal poisoning, epilepsy, a brain lesion, a meningeal inflammation. Mm-hmm. And then one uh, popular theory, and it's actually one that sort of makes sense, again, with the symptoms, is he got bit by a rabid animal. He died of rabies. But the thing that nothing explains is the clothes. Yeah, the clothes is weird. The clothes is weird. Yeah. So this takes us to the cooping theory. Okay. So what is cooping? So in 1867, a writer named E. Oaksmith was among the first people to suggest that Edgar Allan Poe's death may have been the result of foul play. In an article called Autobiographic Notes, Edgar Allan Poe, she wrote, at the instigation of a woman who considered herself injured by him, he was cruelly beaten blow upon blow by a ruffian who knew of no better mode of avenging supposed injuries. It is well known that a brain fever followed. 
I mean, for me, I'm like, cite your sources, lady. Like, what? Who is this woman? What's the supposed injury caused by him? Like, this seems like from right speculation to me. I didn't read the entire article, so maybe she does cite her sources. Well, and it's, I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Continue, but. Other writers would go on to kind of popularize the idea that he is—he was actually beaten up, and that his that what happened was because of a beating. So writers and biographers would go on to mention quote ruffians in 1872. Uh, someone named Eugene Didier, or is either Didier or Didier, uh, wrote in his article *The Grave of Poe* that Edgar had run into some old West Point friends while in Baltimore, and that they pressured him into going out and drinking with them. According to Didier, Poe became wildly drunk after a single glass of champagne again this idea that he couldn't handle his alcohol and wandered off into the streets where he was quote robbed be- and beaten by ruffians and left insensible in the street all night now over time this belief has evolved into the idea of that he fell, fell victim to cooping so what is cooping so an author a guy named mark dawidziak published a book just last year called a mystery of mysteries the death and life of edgar Allan poe that really details this theory so cooping was a method of voter fraud that was practiced commonly by 19th century gangs Mm -hmm. and so this is what you were talking about at the top they would approach an unsuspecting victim kidnap them beat them sometimes force them to drink copious amounts of alcohol and then they would take them from polling place to polling place often forcing them into different disguises and changes of clothes Mm-hmm. So that they could go in and like vote multiple times for the same candidate. And sometimes bringing them back to the same polling place, but you know, again, changing clothes and putting on a disguise. The victims, like I said, would be forced to drink copious amounts of alcohol to make them more compliant. Sometimes at the end, after they were drug around all day doing this, their reward was they were given a shot of liquor. Or given a stein of beer. Okay. And turned loose. This was very common in Baltimore at the time. Uh, and the tavern where Poe was found was, in fact, the fourth ward polling place. And it was election day. It was a sheriff's election. So this Mark Dawidziak, he says, it was, it's a very Baltimore explanation. It was a tough, tough town nicknamed Mob Town because they took their rioting seriously. In the late 1870s, a Poe biographer named J.H. Ingram received a number of letters from different sources, all claiming that he had fallen victim to Cooping. Uh, so one letter was from someone named William Hand Brown. He was a faculty member at Johns Hopkins University, and he told Ingram that, quote, the general belief here is that Poe was seized by one of these gangs. His death happened just at election time, an election for sheriff that took place on October 4th. He was cooped, stupefied with liquor, dragged out and voted, and then turned adrift to die. Hmm. It's well established that Edgar did not handle his alcohol well. Again, a lot of people think this is hereditary. This is something that is known about his brother and sister and possibly even his father. And like I said, it's known that at the time he was trying to woo Sarah Royster and he had joined this temperance movement and had supposedly quit drinking altogether. Now, could he have just like fallen off the wagon? Sure, you know, that certainly is possible. But even if that's the case, you know, if he had like, if he had this problem with alcohol, this allergy to alcohol, but at the same time had a dependency on it, tried to make himself quit drinking, lost whatever tolerance he had, and then went back, fell off the wagon and got drunk, Mm, that would have made mm -hmm. him more susceptible to the dangerous effects. This also would be true if he had quit drinking, somehow got grabbed by a bunch of gang members and forced to get drunk. Yeah. To make him go vote. Nothing really explains everything. So, like, I don't know. What do, what do you think? Like, what's your theory from everything I've learned up? I mean, I think, I think cooping or, like, diabetic coma. Mm-hmm. Mostly because if he'd been beaten, he would have, like, they said that he looked ghastly. But somebody looking like shit and somebody looking beaten are two different things. Right. 
rabies by the time it kills you you're not like you're not coherent you can't even speak words by the time rabies is ready to kill you well that's the thing is like no one really knows what was going on in this room while moran had him locked up but there's no like the late stage rabies symptoms he doesn't say anything about those yeah so so there's that uh I mean, it is the 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 clothing thing is weird. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I'll tell you what I think it is. I think it's a combination of things. I think he was already sick, and I think it might have been from like this hypoglycemia theory is interesting to me. Yeah, and if if he had already severely damaged his liver from drinking and it had this allergy to alcohol, you know, even if he was trying to get himself sober, essentially, he might have already done just a lot of damage to himself. Yeah. So, so he was already, I think, in a vulnerable situation when he arrived in Richmond. It's yeah. clear that you know, because he was hallucinating and stuff then, he left, he had a fever when he left. Yeah. So I think he was in not good shape. And then I think it's likely that the cooping theory is true what i don't yeah. understand is how he ended up in baltimore yeah that's weird yeah like that's that's right because he you know like he's supposed to go to philadelphia so how, why did he end up in baltimore well if he was like really doing badly and if he started to hallucinate again and was like having problems baltimore is an area he knew he had an aunt there yeah maybe it was just this like desperate like i'm trying to get to safety and then but if he was wandering the streets kind of in those days that would have made him very um vulnerable to these gangs i think the fact that it's election day it's baltimore which is known for cooping and the clothes yeah points to that's at least a factor to me that's yeah i think so too but like people got cooped all the time and usually didn't die so i think something else was going on with him yeah i think so too i think yeah. Yeah. I like to think he was genuinely trying to like get his life together is kind of what it sounds like to me. And I and I'd like yeah. to give him credit that maybe that was genuine and that this was just sort of a freak confluence of things. Yeah. I don't like I don't like the it sounds like a lot of the lore that we grew up with about him being this like degenerate drunk debauched whatever is from a lot of people who had a lot of agendas to say bad things about him yeah i mean clearly he had a problem with alcohol clearly he did have a drinking problem but i I do like to think i like to hope at least he was trying to get a handle on it yeah and i think i think it's likely he was victimized by somebody while he was in like a a bad health state yeah it's really sad yeah how old was he when he died he was 40. He was like 40 because he was born in 1809. And he died in 1849. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yikes. Well, yeah. So that's a bummer. Go. That's a bummer. <laughs> Yet again. But there you go. That's the story of the, the sort of sad life and very weird death of that girl. That's nuts. It's yeah. just, I, I don't know. Anytime that there's a mysterious, like a mysterious death. I mean, mm-hmm. it's always pretty fascinating. Yeah. Well, his uh, is fascinating one of the stuff. most mysterious. Like, yeah, and it's just like it's just always a bummer to be like, man, we're never gonna know. Like, yeah. Yeah, we I, know I, everything I, that there is to know about it, probably at this point. Yeah, so like we'll never yeah. know what, and we'll never know how he ended up in Baltimore. We'll never know for sure about the cooping thing. Right. Obviously, there's no autopsy that can be performed on on him at this point to tell right, us. Right. Right. Yeah. What he might have been suffering from. So. Yeah. You can draw, you can connect a lot of dots, but it's always going to be an incomplete picture. Yeah. There you go. All right. All right. Well, well, that's it. Good show. Long show. Good show. Long show. Sorry. We've been trying not to do crazy long episodes, but we decided Uh, to talk a lot. This is a... 
first show of the year. I think we can indulge. We have been gone. We also, yeah, we've also been gone for like a minute. So there yeah. we go. Um, so. If you have reached this point in the episode and you are listening to us on Spotify, go ahead and give us a five-star review. That would be amazing. Also, go ahead and review us anywhere else. We like reading what you all have to say about us. I mean, it's all been nice so far. I say that. <laughs> Somebody's going to be like, these two assholes. Um, Never shut the fuck up. Never shut the fuck up and blah, (laughs) blah, blah. Uh, But go go ahead and rate us on whatever listening platform you are experiencing us on. And, you know, like share our podcast with your friends, with your Nana, with your next door neighbor, uh, share us on social media. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We're, uh, the weirdest, are we the weirdest thing podcast on Instagram? Is that what yes. we are? You can also send us an email if you have a story idea or just want to tell us, Hey, what's up? It's, this is weirdest thing pod at Gmail, right? Right. I believe that's what it is. I was just looking at it. Yeah. And other than that, stay weird, stay curious curious and we'll see you next time bye bye so listen friends we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find might be true and that's the weirdest thing